that is, you know, when everyone joins the Secret Service, it's to go to the sh- what they call the show, which is the president's detail. Okay. But the Secret Service um, has a huge arm of investigative activities. When you start your first office, you kind of do all the financial crime investigations, credit card fraud, uh, check forgery, money laundering, um, and definitely the counterfeiting. And then after you do your first office, then sometimes you can go to a different office in headquarters or you can go to one of the details. And that could be either a former president, the vice president, or the president, mm-hmm. or whoever the Secret Service has been designated to protect during that time frame. Awesome. Well, Holly, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. And like I said, I we love your product. And everyone I work with is fascinated with Montana Knife Company. So I'm super happy to be here. That's awesome. Well, it's something I asked you to do a few years ago or a couple of years ago anyway, but um, you couldn't do it because of your current role and whatnot, but you're newly retired. Yes. What is, how does that feel? Pretty surreal. Uh, technically, my last day in the office was uh, December 29th, so it's only been a week. That's crazy. So it is crazy. It was almost, almost 26 years. Did they throw a party for you? You know, we actually had a pretty big shindig. Yeah. Um, it was pretty awesome. Had some folks say some really nice things, you know, made me tear up. It yeah. Was, it was a good send off. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So 20, you said almost 26 years? Yeah. So I started May 11th, 1998. Really? So in May, it would be 26. So. Okay. So where did you, where did you grow up? I was born in Illinois, a real small farm community, but we moved to Phoenix, Arizona when I was three. So almost okay. all my schooling was done there. And then I did, um, I went to Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. NAU. Yeah. you. Yeah. I love Flagstaff's cool. Cause you have like you're only a couple hours from like nice warm weather in the winter, but then they actually, it's, I was amazed the first time I was there. I think the first time I was there, I think they had like a foot of snow and I was like, oh, wait, sure. is, this is supposed to be Arizona. It's kind of very similar to Missoula's climate. Actually. It's, um, we definitely get a nice winter, but it, it would melt off. And, and actually my son, um, my stepson, our oldest son, he just graduated from Northern Arizona too. And he's a police officer in Flagstaff now. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, when you were in high school, did, did you were you in sports or what did you like to do for fun or yes. hobbies or? I was pretty involved kid. I loved to do. I played basketball, uh, softball, and my honestly my favorite sport was badminton. Really? <laughs> yeah, we had a badminton team. Yeah. And I was actually pretty good on varsity in badminton, but um, and then I did all kinds of you know, um, like speech and debate that kind of stuff. So yeah, definitely a very involved kid. Yeah. Was a Girl Scout, you know, all the good stuff. So did you, did you know in high school what you wanted to be when you grew up or how did you end up on the, on the path that you wanted to, that you ended up on? No, I absolutely had no idea that I would end up doing this. If you would have told me that I was going to do this, be a special agent for Homeland Security or with the Secret Service when I was in high school, I'd have told you you were crazy. Really? Yeah, I basically kind of fell into it. Thanks, Mac. I initially was going to, um, wanted to be a lawyer. That was my plan. There was three girls I ran around with, and we all one wanted to be a doctor, one wanted to be a lawyer. We were all kind of pushed each other yeah. competitively. And I went to work in Flagstaff for the county attorney's office up there and quickly figured out that that wasn't me, that I wanted to be the one bringing them the cases, not the one adjudicating them. Okay. You wanted to be more of the investigative <laughs> yep. side. Yeah. So then I ended up... Um, Did you have a law degree yet at that point? No, I was just undergrad. Okay. And that's all I have now still is I just have a four-year. Okay. And that's all it takes to become a federal agent is okay. just a four-year degree. Yeah. Um, and mine just happened to be in criminal justice. 
which because I can't do math, so that was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfect for me. Yeah. So when so when I was doing that, I really didn't know what I was going to do once I decided I didn't want to go to law school. I'm like, what the heck am I going to do with myself? You know, I, I got to figure it out. So a very good friend of mine, it was actually my boyfriend at the time, his mother said, why don't you go talk to my friend Joe? Joe works for the Highway Patrol down in Phoenix. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'll go talk to Joe. This will be fine. But I know I knew I didn't want to be a trooper, so to speak, at that time. And uh, so thank goodness I dressed up because I walked in and Joe was the director of the entire Arizona Department of Public Safety. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was a pretty, it was a pretty amazing sit down with him. And he actually asked me if I wanted to be a trooper. And I said, no. And he asked me if I wanted to be an intern. And I had paid my way through school and I needed to make money. And I'm like, I can't do that anymore. I've got bills to pay. Yeah. And so I left thinking that was a great, you know, <clears throat> kind of interview and, but not really sure still. So yeah. then that was a Friday. That Monday I got a call from his secretary saying they had found grant money to pay me to be um, work anywhere in the department I wanted as an intern. Oh, wow. Which was pretty awesome. Like I felt pretty blessed yeah. by that. And so I had no idea. So they threw out a few different things and I ended up going to the intelligence unit. Okay. And at that time I worked with um, a gal by the name of Lori Norris. She was my sergeant and she was awesome. Super fierce. Woman. Yeah. And, um, she asked me if I wanted to be an analyst or an investigator, and I'm like, I don't know, what do the analysts do? And so she handed me a stack of books that was, you know, higher than I was on the counter, and I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, what do the investigators do? Because I don't think this is for me. Yeah. And so it took me about an hour to figure that out. But at the time, they were working on a huge case called the Viper Militia, Militia case. Okay. This was 1996. And so the Viper case was basically a group of individuals that wanted to blow up the Capitol there in Phoenix and um, take out the federal building. They were actually going so far as to practicing explosives um, to see how they would detonate, how they would work. And they had done a con- all kinds of, we had, ATF had an undercover that was working on this case okay. with them. <clears throat> and so during that case, while I was working with Lori, I basically learned everything about it in the short time that I was there. Yeah. And when we, it came down to do the big takedown, there was, I can't remember, it was something like 19, and my, don't, quote me on my numbers, but yeah. like 19 arrest warrants, 14 search warrants, all within Phoenix city limits. One of the houses had so many explosives, they had to shut down a whole city block wow. to clear it. But during that time, Lori had told the special agent in charge, who's the head guy of ATF for Arizona, that I was kind of a right-hand girl and I knew everything that, you know, um, about the case and whatever he needed, you know, I could do it. I was yeah. solid. So I start doing stuff for him. And I'm out doing all kinds of stuff. I'm moving, you know, prisoners around and and uh, helping with inventorying evidence and all kinds of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been doing because yeah. I was an intern. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time um, Tom was talking, his name was Tom Garrity, was talking to Lori um, around lunchtime because we started at like 3 o'clock in the morning. He's like, hey, you know, Holly really should take the you know test for promotion. She's fabulous. And she's like, well, she's not an officer yet. It's like, <laughs> what? She's not. Uh, she's not. And... So he's like, she needs a job. And so he sat me down and gave me his business card. And that's how my federal kind of career fell in my lap. That's so, cool. Yeah. So then I met with Tom the next week. They weren't hiring. And so he said, take the Treasury Enforcement exam with the Secret Service. And once they start hiring, then, um, we'll, or once we start hiring, we'll steal the score from them. And you'll be that much further along okay. in the process. And so I went through the whole process with Secret Service um, before ATF started hiring. And then... Literally, I was about to leave for the academy for uh, 
Secret Service and they called and they said, hey, we have openings. Are you interested? And I'm like, eh. I felt like at the time Secret Service was a better fit. Really? So, yeah. So it, all, it literally. <clears throat> and how old were you at that time? Oh, gosh. I got hired with Secret Service when I was 23. Wow. So it took about 18 months to go through that process of getting hired back then. It changes every with everyone kind of depending on what the government has offered at the time and how long it takes for your background and stuff. So everybody thinks with the Secret Service, or I should say me because I'm kind of a dummy, uh, that pretty much Secret Service is just guarding the president. Is Does Secret Service have other duties? Is it pretty much all just revolve around the president and his travels and stuff like that? Or No, super diverse. <laughs> and so that is, you know, when everyone joins the Secret Service, it's to go to the sh- what they call the show, which is the president's detail. Okay. But the Secret Service um, has a huge arm of investigative activities where we're all um, what we call 1811 criminal investigators. So we investigate counterfeit currency, which is actually how they were founded by Abraham Lincoln. Really? Um, yes, was because of the counterfeiting going on back during the Civil War. <clears throat> so that's not an FBI thing? or No. <clears throat> yep, nope. It's always been the Secret Services. And then the, the protection um, entity came much later on. Really? Yeah, in the, uh, in the agency's development. But, yeah, so initially, when you start your first office, you kind of do um, all the financial crime investigations, credit card fraud, uh, check forgery, money laundering, um, and definitely the counterfeiting. And then... Um, you do protection kind of as a, there's different phases of protection. There's different, like there's always the detail and that detail specifically works the body only that only works with the protectee all the time. Yeah. And then when you go out to a, like a huge venue, you have to have middle and outer perimeter, perimeter type folks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in your first office, then you are the supplement that fills in those outer and middle type right. perimeter type situations. And then after you do your first office, then sometimes you can go to a different office in headquarters or you can go to one of the details, and that could be either a former president, the vice president, or the president, mm-hmm. or whoever the Secret Service has been designated to protect during that time frame. Mm-hmm. So typically, at least back then, it used to be about five to six years before you would go to a detail. Okay. Um, I actually was very lucky when I first started. I'd been on not quite two years. I was protecting um, Vice President Dick Cheney. Before oh. he was the vice president. Okay. Um, when they were out on the campaign trail. I okay. was assigned to actually to his <clears throat> wife, Lynn Cheney, but they never separated. So our details kind of merged together and we were with both of them all the time. Oh. And um, I was very lucky at the time. I was one of the things I regret in my career, although it worked out in the end the right way. But I was asked after they won the election if I was interested in going to the detail. Oh, really? And I turned it down. Oh, really? I'm an idiot. <laughs> what, what, why did you do that? My, I am actually was married previously. Okay. And my ex-husband at the time was trying to become a firefighter, and he was very close to um, accomplishing that. And so I turned it down for him at that time. And um, Man, them boys, they'll screw your life up. <laughs> yes, they, yes, they will. All sorts of ways. But great. And, you know, I yeah. ultimately ended up in the right way because – I ended up um, ultimately meeting my second husband on the job, yeah. which um, he's amazing. He's also a federal agent. So Yeah, life, uh, mm-hmm. life always seems to work out. The way it's supposed to. Yeah, because, I mean, you, mm-hmm. say, you say that, but, like, had you taken that detail, you know, who knows? Who knows yeah, how it would have worked exactly. out? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I would have ended up in D.C. and probably never back, you know, yeah. anywhere around this part <laughs> of the world, which is absolutely who, where we love to be now. Who wants to be out there? No, not for very long anyway. So you keep yeah. saying... You keep saying that you're, you know, well, I was lucky, I was lucky, I was lucky. There was obviously something about you, because, like, I feel like you you, you create your own luck. Yeah, um, that's true. And, I mean, there's definitely um, such of such of a, as, a, as a thing of luck, 
obviously, but like when it happens over and over, there was something about you at that time that those doors kept opening. Cause also all those people that opened those doors for you could have also kept them closed. Yes. I mean, they made a decision true. based off of the way that you were, the way you conducted yourself to open those doors for you. What do you, what do you think that thing was? What, what was different about you? I'm very, um, someone described me as tenacious mm-hmm. most recently and I'm very positive yeah. and I don't take no for an answer. Really? Once I get kind of dig in and I see something that needs to be fixed or a justice that needs to be served, I dive all in. Yeah. I, I, I just, and I don't stop to like, feel like get it done. Yeah. Latch mm-hmm. on and stay mm-hmm. latched on. Yeah. And, yeah. and the right way, you know, that, that's the other thing. Integrity, um, Homeland Security Investigations, HSI stands for Honor, Service, and, and Integrity, and I take all that to heart. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. What kind of training, you know, to, to get into the Secret Service? Because I imagine when you're doing your investigative stuff, especially with how quick that happened as an intern, you probably didn't have, I'm guessing you didn't have a lot of, like, uh, like shooting training or self-defense or, or did you at that point or did you get that more when you got into like the Homeland Security stuff, some hand-to-hand stuff or? or no, we, it definitely all starts at the very beginning. So um, once you get um, accepted as a special agent with most either, whether it's DEA, FBI, those folks go to Quantico, but everybody else for the most part goes to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center mm-hmm. in Glencoe, Georgia. And to be a criminal investigator, you get all of that. You get... Like, I had really not maybe shot a gun twice in my life before I started, and then I was a sharpshooter. And you did that as as a as an intern? No, I did that or once I got once I got picked up initially with a Secret Service. Okay. So once you get hired, you go, it's a six-month academy, basically, for the Secret Service. At least that's what it was back then, and I think it's still relatively the same. Yeah. But you do three months at Fletzy, which is that Federal Law Enforcement Training Center I was talking about, and they mm-hmm. teach you all the skills that you could need to be an investigator to include defensive tactics, the hand-to-hand stuff that you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, firearms training. You have to hit certain proficiency marks and qualify um, on a pretty rigorous course. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obstacle courses that you have to do um, for physical fitness, um, testing requirements that you have to pass for all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you have your um, your law your law classes that you have to take, how to be an investigator. You have to pass all those with certain number of marks, high marks, yeah. And so they teach you everything that you need to know, basically. So someone like me that never trained for this, wanted to do this when I was younger, it's okay because they want you to come in that way because then they can mold you into what they want you to be. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. makes sense. And so then after you do for Secret Service, you do your three months there. Then you go to three months in Beltsville, Maryland at the James J. Raleigh Training Center there. And you do three months on learning how to be a Secret Service agent. Okay. And that's where they hone in more specifically on the <clears> types of crime that they investigate the financial stuff like the counterfeiting and um, how counterfeit currency is made. There's several different, there's good quality, bad quality, all that kind of stuff. And then also how to, how to protect someone. Yeah. Literally like one of the things that we did that sticks out in my mind is um, they teach you how to crash land into a body of water in an airplane. So they, they hoist you up um, several stories and they put you in a cage that looks kind of like a cockpit yeah. And you have a, a, there's a dummy next to you that's strapped in in a seatbelt and you're strapped in, in a seatbelt and they dump you into a pool and you have to unleash your dummy and unleash yourself and get to the top um, successfully and, and then drag your person to the side. Stuff like that. That's the kind of specialized training that we learned. That's amazing. How to run next to a car and 
jump on and off a moving vehicle because all that stuff you re- we really do. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. God, I imagine you go home yeah. at night. That would be a blast, that kind of stuff. Yeah, especially, um, you know. Do you call your doc? Would you call your doctor friends you grew up, those three friends, oh, those yeah. other two friends? Would you right. call them and be like, they'd tell you about their day, and then you'd be like, guess what I did today? <laughs> right, <laughs> I yeah. I jumped no. on a moving car. They were like, what? Yeah, my friends and family couldn't believe some of the cool stuff that we were doing, and I couldn't believe it either. Like, it's, it was, it's, it's, a, it's, it was kind of like being in a movie, but it was, it was real. And it was, some of it was scary. Like, you know, you have to go overcome those fears of, you know, I could get hurt today, but that's just part of the job. Like, yeah. Cause you're, you're literally, you have to be willing to take a bullet yeah, for a protectee and whether you like that person or not, that's what you're there for. What was that? So were you on the campaign trail with Cheney then? I and, was. And mm-hmm. it was, that was with Bush? Mm-hmm. And was that when he was first, that was when he was first elected? Yeah, back in, in um, that was in 2000. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, then, the, the hanging Chad year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bush Gore. <laughs> right. Thanks, Florida. Uh, so what was that campaign trail like? I mean. Very intense. Um, so you basically, um, we would do 21-day rotations. You spend your time, um, sometimes you, you have like a, a long work day and then you have a travel day and then you have midnight shift. So it, it does three every, three weeks while you're out every week you change. And when you're out doing your, um, like your long day could literally be like 22 hour day. And sometimes you would hit five and six cities a day. Yeah. Um, we flew, sometimes initially you started out um, like on a, commercial depending on what you're doing but ultimately you always ended up on a on they would privately charter these ginormous you know 737 or yeah to fly us around on but um and then on midnight shift you traveled work traveled work traveled work and so sometimes you didn't sleep depending on what part of you know it's it's a very fast paced very intense um sometimes and then when you when you're off your 21 day rotation you're supposed to go back to your field office and go back to your investigations that you've been ignoring oh really um because they don't go away, they're still there. Um, no one picks up the slack because so everyone's a, on the road. Even as a protective detail agent, you're still also doing investigation stuff on only during a campaign shift. So that was when I was a campaign shift <clears throat> agent. So when you actually go to like a former president detail or the president's detail, and you're just strictly doing um, production, okay, then you wouldn't job. do that. But during a campaign year, it's all hands on deck. Wow, because um, there's just not enough of us, so everyone is out working. And so then even when you're back in the office trying to pick up your investigations, then you're still out um, being assigned out to stuff that comes in your AOR. Like, so you have a campaign rally or debate in Arizona, then people would come out. So basically you're gone for the year. It's a tough campaign years are really hard. In the as much as I, as much as I can't stand politicians, the one thing I have always said is, is, and I don't know if they're snorting Coke or how they're doing it, but I don't know how the hell they keep up with that pace. Cause yeah. I mean, say what you want about any of those politicians, the, the, the amount of travel, and I understand it's, you know, private travel and stuff, but it's still, it's exhausting. <clears throat> I just, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. And, yeah. you know, now even more so than then, um, the length of time that that happens, the amount of months after months after months of doing that. And then especially in that last, you know, six, eight months, nine months, well, through the primary season and mm-hmm. then for sure through the camp, the actual campaign, um, it blows me away the amount of travel and how those guys can not look tired on stage. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it, it is exhausting. And then to have to turn it on every, you know, time you get up and give the same exciting speech and to do the whole, yeah, and us too. I mean, and everybody's have, waiting for you to make one mistake. Yes. Say one thing. Yes. 
get caught on a hot mic one time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember from that camp- campaign any close calls you were involved with, with crazy person or issues or so any, anything that kind of sticks out from that time period? Sadly, there's always folks that aren't going to agree with your candidate, you know, and that's one of the part of the training that they give us is um, our protective intelligence training and things like that. Unfortunately, we have a lot of folks with mental illness mm-hmm. that will sh- would show up and, you know, maybe be saying, you know, inappropriate things or different stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think um, most of us at some point or another in our career will have to go hands on, but they teach us techniques on how to, you know, um, break people's like not break. Um, it's called like a, a thumb break where someone's shaking someone's hand too vigorously on how to do that without hurting that individual, but to get them to release things like that, like yeah. pressure point type stuff. Um, lots of, you know, different techniques that I can't go into too many specifics, but right. um, yes, I mean, there's definitely times <clears throat> where we had to utilize some of those and, and um, uh, change up our scenarios based on some of the intelligence that we had. Yeah. Were there quite a few females involved or were you kind of more of a special one? Cause I imagine you yeah. would want a mix of male and female for different situations. Sure. You absolutely um, do you want to mix. Um, I think law enforcement is pretty standard across the board. It's about 10% female, yeah. which is unfortunate because we bring so much to the table in terms of um, how we look at situations, our empathy, um, our, you know, you don't have to be this, you know, hard charging, you know, Superman to do this job. You mm-hmm. have to have common sense. Um, you do have to have be physically fit and be able to utilize, you know, some of those defensive tactic skills that I talked about. But we bring so much to the table as females um, from a different perspective that helps us be successful. Um, and so I really wish that, yeah, that more women kind of thought that they were able to do it. And, and maybe even them hearing me on your show will help encourage some younger girls to say, hey, I can do this because yeah. this other lady did this. Yeah. Because um, I've had an amazing career where I, you know, We'll probably get into some of it, but you know, traveled the world, yeah, done some amazing stuff, and and um, I wish that there definitely um, needs to be more women doing what we do. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and in, in an undercover situation, I mean, quite honestly, um, you know, if you're dressed nice and have your purse and whatever, and you're going about your daily life, like you're not going to be, you know, if I'm doing bad shit, like I'm not really looking for you. Exactly. I'm, you know, I'm I'm looking for the dude that looks like. Right. I need to be worried about him. Exactly. You know? And actually, I was very successful in several undercover roles. Um, yeah. Just for that exact reason, no one would ever look at me, you know. Um, I've had a couple different hair colors. I'm back to blonde again. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, six-foot blonde gal that, you know, I just, I look like, especially because I'm always smiling and I just look like, now yeah. I look like a nice soccer mom. You know, yeah. no one would have any idea that no. what I've done in my life. No, I mean, for quite mm-hmm. a while when I was coaching your daughter in basketball, I, you know, I mean, the last, the last thing I would have guessed is what you do. Right. You know, you're just a nice mom. I mean, right. you know. Yeah. So how long did the uh, Secret Service stuff last? So I was with the Secret Service um, until uh, 2009. Um, I finally left. So after I um, had those that campaign, then I went ultimately in uh, to the President Carter's detail in Georgia, and I was there for four years. Oh, and really? That was an amazing um, experience. So just a, a retired president, and you're just at his residence? Um, so if, if you go with them wherever they go. Yeah. So it's just like when it's like the president or the vice president, they have a detail 24-7, 365 days a year, same kind of thing. Um, so when he's very active, or at least was now that he's gotten a little bit older, he's not as much. Yeah. Um, obviously, sadly, his health has declined. Well, and, and his wife just passed away. Very sadly, yes. Mrs. Yeah. Carter just passed. And, 
Um, but back then, this was 2004 to 2008, extremely active all over Africa, the Middle East, um, a little bit in Europe. We were with them, you know, all over. They were The Carter Center is very um, big on disease eradication. And so there's they were trying to wipe up or wipe off guinea worm, which is a um, horrible disease. It's spread by flies in water. Mm-hmm. And it basically is this worm that gets into your skin and it's very painful to get out and eradicate. But all it takes is literally filtering the water over a cloth. And so they were traveling all over Africa trying to show folks how to filter the water properly so that they would not be getting these terrible diseases. Same really? thing with trachoma, which is known as river blindness. Um, then they did Habitat for Humanity, so we were like in Indi- India with that. And How many um, of the agents would go with them? Or the I, can't, I can't give you specifics okay. on numbers. Yeah. 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 Um, but that's okay. Yeah, I have appreciate you asking but yeah it's it's probably less than you think and i'm gonna um, probably ask more stuff that's okay and i'll just tell you if i can't yeah no that's great yeah it's all good yeah so what is that like like <clears throat> I've, I've thought this before it'd be so you know i've been around uh yeah i've been around some famous people and with their security you know and um most recently like hanging out with with rogan and oh, sure it's i always think about those security guys because one like you say, they kind of always have to be available. And then two, you're also literally a part of their family. I mean, you, and you're hearing all of the conversations about everything and their, you know, personally. And I mean, I'm sure there's times they go close the door and, you know, have their conversations in private. But um, what's that li- What's that like being so involved with somebody also that famous, like as Jimmy Carter, you know, um, as an agent? How... how what are you standing there thinking? Like, do you try to block it out and just like not hear it? But I mean, obviously you are hearing stuff and you also have to just be like, wow, this is incredible that I'm standing right here. Well, whether it's a meeting with another dignitary or it's just something with his family going on. Because we all have family issues. Everybody has family issues. I don't care how famous you are. Right. Like, what, is that, what is that like being that person? Like you're, you're literally the fly on the wall. Sure. And that's one of the things that the secret service prides himself on is, um, is being discreet yeah. because we know that we can't do our job unless we can be that close to them. Yeah. We have to be that close to them to be able to do that. And so, yes, you do sometimes hear stuff that you don't want to hear. Um, or I'm sure they didn't want you to hear, but you just happen to be standing right there. Um, we actually have um, agreements that we have to sign basically that we can't disclose, you know, right. personal things, right. that kind of stuff. But it is very surreal. Like, you know, sometimes it's uh, it can be entertaining. Sometimes it can be, um, but sometimes it's, you know, yeah. how do you, if you're not supposed to be like, quote unquote, you're not supposed to be listening, mm-hmm. but you're standing over there, like trying also not to laugh. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever's happening. You definitely have to practice your stoic face. Yeah, you definitely. Yeah. You can't, you can't like, you cannot let your face show that you are you engaged, know, a especially bit. if it's something that is a private personal matter. You very much definitely don't want to be have your face react to what they're saying because then they know that you're really listening when they, yeah. you know, you're not supposed to be listening. So. Well, and what about, how is it when you go home, you know, you, you were, were you still married at that time? So, um, I, uh, divorced my first husband back in 2004. Okay. And, and my current husband, Craig and I, yeah, we started dating. Okay. 2004. Because I think about even whether <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, whether you're secret service or with what, you know, you, you know, your husband does now or mm-hmm. what you were just formally doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it, it would be, especially in certain circumstances, I mean, I'm certain, in, I'm sure in certain investigations and whatnot, especially with what you both do, you can kind of lean on each other to 
help yourselves out mentally a little bit. But some of that stuff, like with Secret Service and whatnot, you come home and you literally can't tell your spouse about your day. Yeah. That, that would be, uh, what was that like? I think for me, I was pretty blessed because once I started doing, especially most of my detail stuff, um, I was married to Craig, who was a special agent with the Secret Service on the yeah. same detail as I was. Okay. So we actually went to Carter. He, he went first and then encouraged me six months later. He's like, you need to come here. And I was like, okay. So that's where you met him? I actually met him in Phoenix. We were partners on the job. I started first in 98 and he came in like, he came in like, he came in like 2000. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Fishing out of the company pond is probably not the best option, but it works for us. Yeah. It worked for us. But um, so you actually had a spouse you kind of could talk to. Yes. Which is, which for me was amazing because that can be very difficult. And I think for some of the agents that don't have that situation, um, they definitely have a harder time at home sometimes. And it's yeah, a hard, can, it's hard on home and your family anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you come home and your husband's a plumber and you know, he bullshits with his buddies at work about everything. Yeah. You can't share anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That would also, I could see where that'd put a real strain of like, you know, the husband saying like, or the wife, which, whichever way mm-hmm. saying like, you got to tell me something, you know, right. Or, yeah, yeah, that would be, you'd have to have a very understanding spouse. Definitely. And, trust, well, and very trusting. Right. When I started the Secret Service back in 98, there was an 83% divorce rate. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know that it's gotten any better, honestly. And did you guys have yeah. kids at that point? Um, my, uh, Craig had, had children okay. um, with his first wife. Um, so when they, when we started dating in 2004, they were four years old. They were born in 2000. So in that, at that point, um, they were in Phoenix and he had gotten gone to Carter. So it was difficult trying to go back and forth and then have them. Well, um, that's, so come, that's, you know, come to Georgia too, which is where we were living at the time. With, um, with being divorced myself, uh, you know, and, and trying to balance, you know, getting time with your kids and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> that can be very, very difficult. And mm-hmm. just in regular, regular life with regular nine to five jobs. Yeah. And with you guys spending literally, potentially weeks on the road or, or traveling or, or, or getting called in the middle of the night and having to leave or do whatever you, that, that would be very difficult to parent in that environment. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely was. Um, eventually we did have a child together as well. Yeah. And, um, that was in uh, 2008, our youngest daughter was born and, uh, Craig was, had switched agencies and was going over to ICE back then. And I was still with the Secret Service and their family friendly option for him going to Phoenix was to send me to Las Vegas Oh, really? So I went to Las Vegas pregnant. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then the, he was with the twins back in Phoenix. And so for about a year and a half, we went back and forth. And it was, and then I had to go back to another academy because that's about the time I switched over to what we, what was then ICE now, what we call HSI, which yeah. is still under technically ICE. Mm-hmm. They have kind of, if they could just figure out their name, it would be really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they, but it's, it was the same mission. So, so yeah, that was very difficult, um, definitely, and it definitely is hard on family. You definitely have to have a supportive spouse, yeah, um, because you are gone sometimes. Yeah, especially on those campaign details, you know. Because in yeah. two thousand four, again, I was on John Edwards, so I was out with him when he was running for president, and then when he switched over as the vice presidential candidate under Kerry, and so we were out an entire year. I think I was home maybe three weeks in Arizona back then. So what do they do in the Secret Service when you? Um, uh, you know, I, I, you know, it seems like every four to eight years we, you know, we switch political parties as a mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you were on the campaign trail with a, you know, very Republican, very right leaning, um, 
you know, beliefs and whatnot with a candidate. And then I guess with Carter, like he was gone, he was in retirement and probably maybe a little, little bit less involved in like the day-to-day politics stuff. But, you know, uh, like going from Obama to Trump mm-hmm. and then say Trump to Biden mm-hmm. for those guys that are in now. Sure. Do they, when, when say Obama goes, gets out of office, does their detail pretty much just move with them if they want to move back to Hawaii or wherever they want to go? Malibu or something or wherever, or do those agents stay active with the current president or is there a mix? Uh, it's kind of a mix. So typically you would stay, you, once you go to like what they call the show, you're there for five years. Um, so depending, doesn't matter who the president is. Um, but sometimes like maybe the head will change of the detail, like the detail leader, things like that. Sometimes the makeup of the detail will change slightly, but for the most part, once you're there, you're there, no matter who's the president. So how fascinating mm-hmm. would that be to go, because you didn't necessarily go from, like, like Cheney to, you know. Well, I went from Cheney to John Edwards in 2004. Oh, you did? couldn't have been more different. So, and then I also tempt on President Clinton's details slightly okay. um, after he left office, just for a hot minute. Um, and, so but yeah, I've worked, I worked every protectee Republican and Democrat that, uh, except for Reagan, I never worked Reagan, um, but... Um, Carter, both Bushes. Yeah, you definitely, you have to keep your politics in check. You don't have an opinion. Well, I would find that to be least, really fascinating yeah. to hear the conversations and the way that they're angling at different things and the way that they're talking about things and then what they're saying publicly versus what they really actually believe, like in their core. And Sure. Um, I would find that incredibly fascinating to see that that difference, you know, from Obama to Trump, for example. Sure. It couldn't be more different. Well, even just how they treat us couldn't be more different at really times. Mm-hmm. um definitely there was differences in levels of respect and things of that, that nature and i won't get into specifics on who was yeah, better who, who wasn't who's, who's but, I, uh, but i can't <laughs> i uh, i can't really go into that kind of stuff but definitely there are definitely folks that um were absolutely um respectful of what we did and why we were there and there were definitely folks that we were their servants and you know we were in the way so oh man, it was difficult, and that's and you're and literally there mm, to take a bullet. I mean, frankly, literally. So that's, you, that's why you kind of you know. And I always looked at it as I, I, I yes, I was there to protect the person, but I was there to protect the position that 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 person held and what that meant to our country. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Um, and also, it would it would hard it would be hard to not be um, uh, to get real jaded if because you, you're also. You're also, frankly, you're trading a lot of your personal life and, and being a mom or a dad or whatever for your country Absolutely. and for that person, that particular person. Absolutely. And if you would hope that they would show um, decent amount of respect f- for that. Yeah. So there, there were definitely times where it was definitely more difficult to go to work every day. Yeah. But um, for the most part, um, I had a pretty great experience. Yeah. Um, even, you know, every once in a while there was something. But for the most part, I, you know, I loved what I did for a living. Um, I loved being a parent, though. And, yeah, absolutely, there were trade-offs with the kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's why I feel so blessed now, at least, um, to have to be retired so young where I am going to get to at least spend a little bit more time with our youngest Yeah. before she heads off. For sure. Yeah, to yeah. college and such. But but I know definitely the twins, um, our oldest two, mm-hmm. they missed out on a lot of time. Um, right. But we've definitely always tried to – um, we always take big family vacations and holidays are a huge deal. And we just have always tried to make up, even if we didn't celebrate Christmas on Christmas or, you know, um, Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving, we sure we made sure that we still had those experiences, just maybe not on that exact day. 
Well, and I, and I yeah. feel like it doesn't matter who you are. You always feel like you probably could have done better as a parent. You, you could have tried yes. to spend more time here or there or whatever. But then also for, for you know, most kids and stuff out there and, and most families, like it also could have been a lot worse. And you, you have to count more of your blessings than, you know, you, you can't change the things that you wished had been a little bit different. But there's a lot of kids out there with no parents at all. Yep. And, I'm you know, you've obviously seen the worst of the cases. So, Sadly, um, yeah. Yeah. So how, how did uh, the, how did the transition then happen from Secret Service kind of to the next thing? So uh, we were trying to get back to Phoenix to be closer to the twins. Okay. Um, so that was pretty much, neither one of us really wanted to leave the Secret Service. We loved our, what we did. Um, and we were both pretty good at it. And, but it was more important to get back to be closer to them because they needed us. Yeah. Um, there were some issues going on with their mom at the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, we both, Craig was lucky enough to find a position before I was. So then it took almost a year and a half for me to get picked up. And then I ended up, then we were both in Phoenix again working um, for then, back then, ICE. Um, and he wasn't super thrilled on the position he was holding at the time. So we ended up actually going on to the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration. Okay. Being a criminal investigator for them, mm-hmm. which is where he currently is now. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up in a OCDEF task force, which is Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. Um, and pretty quickly started working um, gun trafficking, which back then it was 2011. At this point-ish, 2010, 2011, um, there was a huge gun um, problem where guns were going south to Mexico at the time. So is this part of that Fast and Furious? So I was assigned to the um, to the same group that was working that case. Um, there was two kind of factions of that office. There was one side of ATF that was working it, and then there was another side that was working a similar gun trafficking case, but not the Fast and Furious case. And so I was assigned to the group that was not working the FNF case. Okay. So, um, but... Sadly, um, what transpired in that case is what transpired. Um, several guns went to Mexico that they were unrecoverable. Um, and unfortunately, one of those was used to um, kill Border Patrol agent Brian Terry. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, two of the agents that I was working on our case with um, ended up being whistleblowers in that investigation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was huge... Um, uh, we had went through tons of investigation. Were you guys working in the same office? Um, it was, so we all worked in the same huge building. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, this, it, I mean, we had different sections of the building and yeah. such. But yeah, so it was a difficult, it was a difficult time, definitely, um, for ATF in the office and for those that were working on the task force, you know, with them. Um, in our case, you know, we were lucky enough to put several individuals tied to a major drug cartel. No way. And a lot of those were straw purchasers, which are people that buy guns, just make a little bit of money, say they're buying the guns for themselves and then turn them over. And then, but a lot of those guns, they were trying to send to Mexico. So in our case, though, most of it was historical. And, and sadly, the guns, had, a lot of them had already gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did our best to make sure that nothing in our case was going across the border. Did you travel that was the difference. into Mexico much yourself? Um, I did not travel into Mexico for the case, but we worked down along the border pretty extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were stopping stuff that was trying to cross um, down in Yuma, down in that area quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, stuff in Phoenix as well, too, because a lot of the straws were in Phoenix, and then a lot of the stuff was crossing near Yuma. Was it happening through, like, pawn shops? I mean, how are people getting these guns 
technically they, you know, you could go into any kind of a gun dealer, gun broker, and is, you know, you have to fill out the 4473, which is the form to purchase the gun. Yeah. And these individuals were lying on those forms, which was some of the charges that we were able to show to okay. prove that they were. So, yeah, so there was, so we worked on that. And then sadly, um, we were able to work through, you know, with our case and we're successful in our prosecution of our individuals. There's, I think, 25 approximately that we indicted tied to our case. Um, but after that case, because we had to go through several depositions and our own agency was trying to figure out if we were involved in the other case and it was just kind of a big shit show. Tumultuous, yes, shit show. That's a really good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. That's what it felt like. Um, yeah, because I imagine you uh, I imagine you and everybody were probably investigated to a certain degree. Absolutely, we were. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, we were. Um, I was found cleared of any, you know, and that we were found that, yes, our case was, our case was not doing that and our case was going on the right path. So yeah, um, I was actually offered at that point to go to the um, Joint Terrorism Task Force with the uh, FBI there in Phoenix as a task force officer from HSI to, uh, to the FBI. And I loved that position. I, I spent almost five years there, did a ton of amazing work with some really great folks. Um, sadly, there's a lot going on in Phoenix and there was a lot of different groups that were at play and some folks that had done some stuff in their past that they shouldn't have. And we were able to utilize immigration violations mm -hmm. and some money laundering stuff and to get um, several folks removed back to their, their countries that they came from. <clears throat> so that's obviously the big, that's the big focus today mm -hmm. with our border. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, and there's one, there's one piece of it, which is just, you know, Mexicans coming across the border, looking for a different life and looking for work and potentially you know, back and forth supporting their families and, you know, cheap labor and kind of all that part of it, which, you know, we can debate that till you're blue in the face and <laughs> nobody's maybe necessarily completely wrong on either side. There's, you know, cause it, I, you know, I've been to Mexico and I've seen the worst of how some of those people have to live. And if I was them, I'd be doing the same thing. So yeah. I don't blame them at all. I feel like that's our job as a country to control our own border um, I don't blame them for wanting to come across. But what's more terrifying is who's coming across the border from other countries that are bad actors that, you know, want to potentially perform a terrorist attack or some kind of a mass, <clears throat> you know, bombing, suicide, whatever. Um, and it feels like today, more than ever, we're exposed to to a tragedy, frankly. Um is that kind of the stuff that you were working on back then with like with terrorists from whether it was Al-Qaeda or somebody like that? Sure. Yeah, though. Was that talked about back then? Is that what you were working on? Um, definitely was working on some stuff tied to folks that definitely were with affiliated organizations at one point in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we're able to identify some stuff that, you know, um, was not good. Uh, most of the stuff I worked on was classified. Yeah. Um, we did. We were able to take several um things and work in an unclassified realm under some of the immigration stuff that I kind of talked about. Um, so we were very successful in utilizing um, the criminal investigative skills that we had that I brought to the table, which I think is why I was successful on their task force, because some sometimes you can report and report and report, but if you can't do anything about it, yes. where does that get you? So I said, we got to do something different here. Um, and there was a lot of folks that were doing, you know, wanting to do the same thing. And so we were pretty successful there. I was um, pretty lucky at the time. I was actually given an award by the director of the FBI, James Comey, at the time for my performance there and, and for some of the good work that we did and some of the folks we were able to remove from the country, which 
I'm pretty proud of that award. Yeah. Um, his, some of his politics right now, you know, um, uh, they are what they are, but I'm still proud of receiving that award sure. for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, we talk about the border and stuff like that. Um, I think it was the numbers that I read just recently where it's like 300,000 people crossed just in December yeah. that they documented. So like if you put it in perspective, Missoula is close to that now, about 100,000 people. Yeah. So that's three Missoulas. Yeah, a month. In a month. Like yeah. we can't sustain that. And and then that's just what they were aware of. It's And it's the folks that you're talking about, the ones that are paying extra to not get yeah. caught. Because mm-hmm. well, the cartels and, and are running the border. The cartels basically are running... Yeah, the, you know anything that comes through or, or goes across, they're they're getting paid. Well, you don't no, cross those sections without paying them. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I've heard. Um, and also, it doesn't matter how adequate and how good and how professional the people are down there in those offices where you were at. Um, it doesn't matter how good they are. Um, there's going to be a rate of people you miss, like, mm-hmm. and 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 then. The, the more and more numbers like that, just the higher the chance is that the, the one wrong or the, or the five wrong people right. get through the filter. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's what's scary is, is from what I've, you know, been reading and been hearing is that it's, you know, and, and you even see the FBI of raising alert, alert levels and talking about it. It's like, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, there's a, like a, a chance of a terror attack, like almost imminent. It's just not a matter of if, it's just kind of when. Is it, is it, is it this year or is it in three years? Right. And um, that's, yeah, that could be, it's, it's very distressing, especially doing what we do to watch kind of the politics at play. And sadly, like you said, every year there's a new regime or every four years there's a new change and kind of how, what our priorities are, enforcement priorities, what we, what we do, what we look at. That was probably one of the most frustrating parts of being um, with HSI under ICE um, because it did, our priority enforcement changed based on who was in office. And so um, what laws we were able to follow, what, you know, how we did what we did. And so that that definitely, I think, can be frustrating for a special agent working those cases in those offices. Um, Especially, we're not, again, we're not talking about migrant pickers here. Right. You, you know, I mean, you would think that right. no matter what your politics are, there's a line you get to where everybody is an American that right. is worried about security. It could be that president's you know, niece or nephew in Times Square in New York when mm-hmm. that attack happens. Like, it doesn't matter. You're, we're right. all equal in that way. Right. Um, you would hope that there's a certain line that you get to that when all the cameras are shut off and there's a, it's just a meeting with a bunch of really qualified people, they go, this is some serious shit. Like, I don't care yeah. what your politics are. This we can't allow. And right. you would hope that there would be a line that no matter what your politics are, we just are Americans at sure. that point. I think the frustrating part right now is is our immigration system, and this is just my personal opinion. That has nothing to do with my background, or yeah, I feel like it's broken. Um, and until they fix that, we're going to continue to have problems. I mean, there should be a legal way to come here, but like most of the folks, yeah, yeah are coming, are paying, um, are coming under an asylum claim that is legit. Like right. it's not a legit claim, and so, but they're all here and not being, you know, necessarily processed properly the numbers that are coming through at the time that they're coming through. And then are they going to show back up for that hearing five, six, sometimes seven years later? Right. I mean, it's insane how far out immigration court is right? Um, and the notices to appear that are being issued. And as the front line down there, the agents that are working on that line, you can't continue to watch that day in and day out and not have it affect you. Like it's, I cannot imagine how I was down there. I got sent 
as HSI, we go down to supplement now because of the stuff that um, they just don't have enough people to work to, yeah. for the influx that's coming in. And so they actually tried to send me like a month before I retired. And I was like, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I was down there last, last year um, in April for, um, for a month. And it's just insane what those folks are having to deal with the agents that are working down there. And, you know, just what the, just the turnover is just crazy of what's just coming through over and over. And it's not even really folks from Mexico where, you know, it's mostly, you know, Guatemala, Venezuela, right. Colombia. There's, I mean, the folks from all over, the, right. you know, and from the South America. And then you throw in China and then the Middle East and, you know, Syria. And, you know, yeah, all we've that. even seen a huge influx just here in Montana of, of folks coming in from different. And I'm all for, for people who want to come and, but like the folks that are coming in now, they're not given, you know, work authorization, things like that. So what do we expect them to do? Right. They're going to live off the taxpayer dollar or right. start to commit crime yeah. unless they have the ability to work. So there's definitely so many things that need to be changed so that they can at least be productive if you're going to allow all these folks in. It, it's make the it productive. most, you could, you could. And they may be changing, trying to change some of that. So right now I haven't, I'm not down there, you know, right. doing the processing, but yeah. To me, it's the most, you know, you can take, Russia, China, whatever, all the things across the globe, it's to me, it's the most absolutely the most imminent threat that we face. Like, yeah. because it's the only way really that a, another country is actually going to hit us on our own soil mm-hmm. is going to be through that process. I mean, you know, we're, we're geographically in a really good position to protect ourselves and with technology and our military defense to protect ourselves from some attack. And, and it would be suicide for another country to actually you know, try to do it in such an overt way. Right. But that's how you do it. I mean, yeah. it's going to be through that process at the border. Right. Um, you know, and I agree, you know, I, I look at how difficult it was in the last couple of years for my cousin to immigrate to the U S from Alberta, mm. from Canada. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're talking about, I mean, she's, you know, married my cousin who lives in Wyoming. Um, they got married up in Canada, but, um, you know, we're talking about this little white girl that speaks perfect English that, you know, has maybe a tiny bit of a Canadian accent, but like has this amazing business that she's got going. And it, it literally should be a 10 minute interview with a judge or right. whoever. And like, okay, yeah, you're the kind of people we want. I mean, right. you have a business, you have a job, you speak English, you're educated, you know, yeah. bam, done. Like it should be that. And, and even for migrants, you know, that, that truly want to just come here and work and go home. That's mm-hmm. great. Like, come on in. Yeah. Um, it's a, well, even this, the, the office that handles um, Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, USCIS, we call it, uh, they're basically funded through fees, through like the fees that you pay to get your lawful permanent residence status and all those. Every document that you submit has a fee associated to it. So, like, say when Trump is in office, there was not a lot of, immigration going on not a lot of folks coming in so basically that agency was cut to its core because they didn't have the fees to pay the people to process the applications so Hmm. anyone who was trying to do it the right way there was no one there to process their applications wow but now that things have changed and biden's in office lots of fees coming in lots of immigration lots of so now they've built it back up again but then you have so but you aren't keeping the same folks there that know how to do the process know how to that agency alone needs to be completely revamped. Yeah. You should never have an agency that's run based on that. Like no. it's, that should not be how you pay the bills and keep the lights on no. for those folks. No. Like, and especially yeah. when we burn money in a burn barrel in Ukraine at the rate we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, 
it's amazing where our our focus and where we te- we choose to spend our money. And and again, we're talking about all our representatives, you know, Democrat and Republican. We we all live in this country, and we're all Americans. Like you would think that protecting the homeland would be like that's that's number one, right? All other issues around the globe are number two. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, <clears throat> when you were when you were working that, were you were you investigating like the cartels a lot when you were doing the gun stuff? Definitely um, that, and then so once I did my. Um, and primarily at that time, we were looking at the, it was mostly the Sinaloa cartel. Um, but then after I did that, I went to the JTTF, like we talked about. And then I did some more national security work um, in Phoenix, where we did counterproliferation type investigations, which is trying to keep our proprietary um, goods and services, um, stuff that we don't want, you know, China, Iran, North Korea, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, all that stuff has to be cleared, and, and those folks are monitored, so to speak. Um, and we want to make sure that things are going to the right people, that they're not getting in the wrong hands. That's, so, basically so I worked that a little bit. Pr- protecting like national C, uh, intelligence and, and some uh, of that, but even like um, like night vision technology right. or specific, you know, computer hardware system technology, that kind of stuff. So I did that slightly for um, a couple years, um, and then when I was, uh, I spent a year over as an acting supervisor, working on the anti smuggling task force, which was trying to keep aliens from being smuggled into the country um and our and our focus wasn't specifically on the aliens themselves it was the people who were coordinating and bringing them in so how is that that working how does that work so um at least back then there was definitely specific individuals and they were and a lot of them tied to you know cartels and depending on which routes they took and where they came through and stuff but there was definitely at the time specific individuals that we targeted as a group um like ones that were utilizing children to be like the same child was being, you know, brought back and forth across the border. And Jeez. this is my niece. This is my niece you know, with a different guy every single time. Right. Kind of shut that kind of stuff down. Um, one guy, he, he was one of the most prolific Guatemalan smugglers at the time. Um, he, the Border Patrol had been wanting this guy for like 10 years. And so we were able to take him down. Um, stuff like that. So it was good to, but it, the sad thing is, is that once you get one, yeah, another just one just pops up right behind it. So, but the whole, our dream, my husband and I, was always to get to Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were on President Carter's detail, um, he is a big fan of Montana. He's very good friends with Ted Turner. Mm-hmm. And so he would come and stay at Ted's place, and we would work, and, and um, he would fish and, and do all that. Did and, you hunt some buffalo? Um, I did not hunt any buffalo with <laughs> him. <laughs> but, the, um, but we did eat at Ted's restaurant a couple of times. So. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so... That's when I fell in love with Montana back then, back in 2004. And so we would come. My husband had a cousin that lived in Bozeman, and so we would stay after a week or whatever. So ultimately, we wanted to get back here. And my husband's position, he's, he covers Montana and has for several years before we got here. And, we and got his here. job is to keep, keep the Canadians out, right? No. That's <laughs> <laughs> just just um, counterfeit pharmaceuticals oh, coming oh, from Canada. I thought it was. <laughs> I thought you were both keeping Canadians out, watching that border. No, his, he yeah. does mostly like counterfeit um, um, drugs being brought into the country, mm-hmm. um, stuff being utilized, like treatments that people saying that they're curing cancer and it's just bogus bunk type stuff. He's trying to make sure that kind of stuff. Yeah. But um, 
He did have a big case tied to Canada, though. I think that's, really? that's probably where that came from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> but he... Um, Keeping my cousin out. Right. Yeah. That's, he was like, that Smith girl. Get her yeah. out of here. Yeah. Um, so the... Uh, so ultimately, yeah. So we fell in love with Montana. And so we were trying to get up here and then, um, I was, they had asked me to take over, um, a position as that, um, group supervisor with the task force. But at the time I couldn't take the promotion and then come here cause it would be a step back in pay grade Oh, and they wouldn't let you go backwards. And so I turned Even that if you down. wanted to. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I turned that down at that point. And then, um, I'd also, we finally got where I was going to be coming and uh, was able to get a what they call a self-funded lateral transfer up here. And was we were super excited about. But I got a phone call, too, from an old supervisor that I had back when I was doing the JTTF work. And he wanted he asked me if I would actually come assist running part of National Security Division and headquarters in D.C. Oh, wow. And that was going to be, he said, 18 months. Um, but then... He said, well, in reality, it's going to be more like four to six years because I'm going to retire and I want you to take my spot and run the whole country. And I have super, again, felt very blessed and lucky to have that um, yeah. position. But I definitely had worked my tail off on some of those cases that we did back then. And I respected the heck out of this guy. And um, we had a lot of long talks for a couple nights in our house and, and decided that ultimately for our kids yeah, and for the family that it was it was best to do what we had talked about and come to Montana, which I'm super thankful that we did. So that's how we ended up here. And um, I started working on a drug task force here okay. with a lot of our state and local folks and um, DEA and ATF. And uh, sadly, there's more drugs in Montana than people think. So that's what is something that, that I think people are blown away by. But, but what we also, I mean, there's drugs everywhere, right? But... <clears throat> It was also explained to me by by someone else that does stuff that's similar that, um, you know, like with Interstate 90, it's a corridor. It is. From the West Coast into like the Bakken oil field area and, and then down through Canada from, you know, down through I-15, you know, through Montana into Salt Lake or, you know, down through Denver. So Montana really has a lot of crossroads through it. <clears throat> Not to mention just, I mean, there's people that use drugs everywhere and deal drugs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep, sadly. Um, yeah. When I first got here in 2018, there was no fentanyl here. Really? And now it's everywhere. In 18. So mm-hmm. just in five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. We were you, like, you're like, whoa, look at there's some, now it's everywhere. Now that, now it's kind of become the thing. Um, and even cocaine has made a, has made a huge comeback. There was no cocaine here hardly when I started and cocaine is everywhere here now. So when you came here, what were you kind mm-hmm. of focusing on with the drugs? Meth, meth and heroin. Okay. Um, and now pretty much you won't, it's, shocking if you see heroin because everyone's turned to fentanyl really mm-hmm. and it's in everything sadly now they're putting it in everything they're putting it in weed they're putting it in Seriously? cocaine yeah it's C- in try- marijuana trying to get some of it they're trying to get kids hooked mm-hmm. that's amazing it's sad it's scary it's yeah. scary as a parent so mm-hmm. what why with with what people know and i mean i'm asking i mean it's a dumb question because it's mm-hmm. like you wonder yourself like why do you do it right but because right. like people can use something like cocaine in a somewhat controlled way and and decide to quit or even function mm-hmm. um you know in small doses or whatever but with like meth and with and then fentanyl i mean how how much more dangerous and powerful is fentanyl over meth because, I mean, all we ever heard for the longest time was, like, 
you know, meth, the whole billboard, you know, you know, right. Do it once. Like yeah, the meth project. I remember back. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So truly, I mean, I would say they're both pretty dangerous, but people, you know, sadly can function and survive on it for a pretty long time. It, it just kind of eats your insides out though. Your the teeth meth fall does. out. Yeah. You're, yeah. you literally, you can watch someone physically deteriorate horribly on it. Um, and the fentanyl though, I mean, literally it's going to kill you eventually. Like, but you can build up a tolerance, you know, people, you know, you start with one, two, but well, we were resting folks sometimes 30, 40 pills a day. Are you serious? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think one person even said it was higher than that. Like, um, cause it would build their tolerance and their, that's all they care about is just getting that, you know, getting that high and you'll never, from what the way I understand is you're never going to feel that same way again. Oh, and you're constantly so you're chasing, chasing that, that feeling. Um, and I don't understand, you know, and this is something we talk about with, you know, folks like, you know, what's going to kill you. Like, is that, is, is it worth that? And sometimes once they get to that point, sometimes for them it is. So I, mm-hmm. <clears throat> on Rogan's show, he had this guy on, I don't remember his name, but he, uh, has that YouTube soft white underbelly, mm-hmm. uh, YouTube channel where he just goes and oh, interviews okay. people on Skid Row Oh, gotcha. and he'll okay. interview, I mean, <clears throat> It's, it's actually hard to click on them and watch them at first because you even feel dirty just even, like, watching this person. Sure. Um, and I'm sure it's stuff, uh, it's all stuff you've seen and dealt with, but he interviews, I don't care, it can be anyone from a drug addict, you know, there are all these homeless people on Skid Row. It can be, you know, drug addict, um, you know, sex offenders, child molesters, sure. um, like, the entire gamut. But he'll just sit them down and he'll just interview them. And... Uh, I was actually, I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole watching a bunch of them, a bunch of the drug stuff. Um, I actually found those drug addicts to be very self-aware, mm-hmm. incredibly self-aware, yeah. and a lot of them incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. And they all wanted, uh, not all, m- most of them wanted to quit, and they mm-hmm. had plans on quitting. They had plans on, you know, quitting and going back to school and starting a job and whatever. Right. But to your point, you know, he would even ask them, like, you know, this is going to kill you. And they're like, I know. But, like, <clears throat> they, they 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 were talking about fentanyl. And they were saying, like, the one guy was like, I quit meth. I was I was fine, like, quitting meth. Mm-hmm. The pain and, the, and the, the, the draw that the fentanyl had was, he said, um, he would rather die than have to go through that withdrawal. And of yeah. Normal. Like, it was so Do- addictive. Dope sick is real. Yeah. It was beyond... Um, something that that guy could ever comprehend, even though he wanted to. Yeah. He's just like, you don't understand what it's like once you're on it to yeah. get off. Yeah. It's definitely extremely, extremely difficult to beat. Um, I have seen people do it, but it's rare. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, even to get clean for years and then go back to it, it's crazy. Like I, yeah, I don't know what, what, um, not having ever done anything like that myself, Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I mean, I'm an adrenaline junkie. That's where I get my, yeah. my high, you know, from kicking indoors <clears throat> and that kind of stuff, which I haven't, don't even do that anymore now. But, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's sad that, um, and they'll go for everything, their kids, their families, they're, you know, chasing yeah. that, chasing that high. Um, but you know, it's, uh, until again, this goes back to the border, you yeah. know? All that stuff is coming from China and Mexico. Is it? Yeah, all of it. Really? Yeah. So it's until we start shutting down some of that stuff, 
we're going to continue to see influx, influx, influx. How do they, do they place people like dealers here? How do they find dealers like in Montana from, you know, from Mexico and Central America? How how does that process work? Well, we, you know, even when I first started here, we didn't have a ton of what I would say a cartel presence here, but it's definitely grown over the last, you know, five, five and a half years. And where we are seeing a lot more folks and they're just moving, making their way up and realizing it's kind of an untapped territory. Yeah. So we do, we get a lot of stuff out of, um, California and a lot of stuff out of Washington. Um, most of our corridor was coming out of Washington, but, um, but realizing that, whoa, I can, there's nobody here. I, I have a yeah, whole new territory I can come take over. And so we, we've definitely been, um, doing our best to knock it down as, you know, as, as we identify, you know, those hubs and stuff, but some of like your street level dealers here in town is just out of necessity to feed their habit. Right. So folks turn dealer because, they have, you know, that 30, 40 pill habit. And when they're so much a pill, you know, depending on which is that is even dropped six, what's you know, up bill substantially. Cost? Oh, right now it depends on where you buy it, but typically you can buy them over in, you know, Washington for three bucks a pill. Really? Um, if you have a good, if you have a good connect, you can get it down at the border for about a buck. Really? So but it's up cheap. here in town, you're buying them for, you know, eight to 10 ish on, on the um, Native American reservation. They're going for like twenty to forty. Really, it's it's insane. The up, so a lot of you. That's I think you're seeing a lot of that folks moving up, trying to, you know, get that um, the reservation traffic where they can make so much more appeal selling it up there. Sadly, yeah, um, yeah it's it's uh, it's but the markup is huge in terms of you know profit profitability up in this area because yeah. it's still that untouched where it's not you know. They can't get it. They can get it so cheap down there, and then to sell it up here, you can make a lot of money. Really? Sadly. Mm-hmm. Do you find it easier or harder to investigate in a? I mean, Montana has like a million people. Mm-hmm. It's really, you know, generally pretty small in the scheme of things. Because I was actually really good uh, friends for a long time with a gal in New York City. She was an NYPD <clears throat> investigator. Her husband worked at the uh, kind of at the docks as a um, customs agent, but. I asked her, this is 20 years ago, but I had asked her, I'm like, if somebody commits a murder or crime or whatever, and it's in, in New York City, like, how the hell do you find that needle in that haystack? Right. And she actually said, you know, when you divide up the city into, you know, the Chinese area and the Vietnamese area and the, you know, Indian area and all these different areas, and she's like, it's really made up of just, like, lots of small cities. And, yeah, and it's actually agree. quite connected. Yeah. And she's like, you can find information a lot of times easier than you would think when you're looking at so many millions of people. Sure, sure. <clears throat> but do you find as an agent, um, I would think it would be easier to investigate because like I, a, a town like Lincoln where I grew up, it's so small. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would seem like, I mean, you kind of, everybody kind of knows everybody. Do you find it easier or is it actually harder because you do have people that are more tight-knit that protect each other? Or is it easier to find that dealer and that person in that small town in Montana? Um, you know, I think it's, it has its challenges no matter where you are. But definitely, I feel like um, it is a little bit easier to pinpoint specifics um, mm-hmm. on certain things uh, just because everybody does know everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but we rely a lot on, you know, individuals in the community coming forward with tips, leads, that kind of stuff. Um, that all is huge. And then also um, sources, individuals Informers. that were able to, yeah, to work um, and when it is smaller, it does make your pool a little bit easier to definitely work from. 
Um, but yeah, I could see what your, um, what your friend is saying. We used to go to the UN every year and I was usually in New York city a couple times a year for different protection type stuff. Um, the UN being the United Nations general assembly where mm-hmm. all the foreign leaders would come. And, um, it definitely has a definitely small town, even though it's ginormous. I see exactly what she's saying. Cause yeah, it definitely has that, that feel, but you know, I definitely think that, um, even coming from Phoenix working, you know, drugs, um, there to here, it's just such a. Um, a different scale, you know, there we were taking off, you know, kilos at a time. Yeah. And then when I came here, you know, it was like grams and pounds. Yeah. And sadly, you know, we're moving up in the world here yeah. and starting to take off some more of those bigger quantities as, you know, time progresses. But, um, but the men and women that are working that stuff are super dedicated and, and doing a really good job trying to keep a handle on it. Um, but sadly it's, it's, um, and, Till we change some stuff of the flux of just what's coming into the country, we're going to continue to see that stuff grow. Do you find the education process through like the schools and stuff and the way that, you know, like I look at, you know, the eighties and nineties when I grew up, like everybody smoked, mm-hmm. right? You go to a bar to play pool. It's filled with smoke. Everyone smoked. You didn't even think twice about it. You went to Perkins for breakfast and they're like smoking or non-smoking. And there's a half piece <laughs> of glass, you know, and it's like, but the education process about, you know, cigarettes and tobacco and whatnot. And then a lot of the laws that got passed have largely, like now you see a young person smoking, it kind of shocks you. Mm -hmm. It's like this beautiful 21 year old girl. And then she lights up a cigarette and it's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, how can you be so stupid? Right. Yeah. Um, So it's much more rare and it's financially, uh, you know, through a lot of the taxes and stuff they've done on that stuff, you know, difficult for young people to partake in that stuff. But do you find the education with fentanyl and meth and a lot of the push that's happened in the last few years, do you find a lot of the young people, do you, do you see it getting any better or is it, is it just because the drugs are getting more and more addictive and they're better at doing what they're doing? It's still just getting worse. Like the drug problems just growing or is it like kind of about the same? It's right. just a different drug today than it was yesterday. You know, I, I don't know that it's, I just feel like, for me, like, I know you're talking about the smoke, but now you say smoke to a kid and that's, they're smoking pot. They're not smoking. Right. They call smoking. Or vaping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And half those vape pens are full of, you know, um, marijuana type products yeah. or, you know, heaven knows what else. But yeah, so um, I definitely feel like, um, at least here locally around us um, in Montana or near in the Missoula surrounding area, um, they're really trying hard to educate the children on what is in these, some of these products, you know, still you're going to have a portion that are going to try it anyway and going to want to do it. And a lot of it be, is because of what they're seeing in their own homes. Yeah. Sadly. Um, but I do think that there definitely is a good push from law enforcement and the schools to really make our kids aware of what's out there, what's going on. Um, sadly though, with things like TikTok and, you know, Snapchat and, you know, that's how they're getting some of their, you know, some of their stuff these days. I mean, all kinds. The sad part is, is yeah, they re- literally are putting fentanyl in everything from hallucinogenics to, you know, and so I think kids not knowing what they're taking initially, and then that could cause them to go down a path that they didn't even necessarily want to go down because they took a hit of something that they thought was one thing and it's really another. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that, um, that it, could get it gets better at least at least for the group of folks that in our you know but I know there still are a whole bunch of kids sadly that are still using and still mm -hmm. what do you think of this argument that 
you know, part of the, and you've, you've actually, I've heard Rogan talk a lot about this and I've actually heard him kind of change his tune too over the last few years a little bit. Um, but you know, that a lot of the draw of drugs is the fact that it's illegal, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you tell a kid you can't do something and they want to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, I've never done a drug in my life. I've never smoked marijuana. I've never done anything. And I'm not just saying that because I have a federal agent sitting in front of me. <laughs> uh, I just never, I was actually really always worried that I would have that addictive personality. Sure. Frankly. Sure. That I would latch, I, I would kind of be the person that would latch onto it potentially. And right. I mean, I had great parents and all that. And so I just, it's just never something that drew to me. And I was always probably too much of a wuss too, because I was always scared, like, I'll be the one person that, you know, strokes out. Right. The first time I smoke a little bit of marijuana or something. Right, right. But what do you think of the argument of of legalizing marijuana and making, like, say, marijuana that's a lot less dangerous, um, you know, in most people's minds, legal and allowing that to happen? Or then you see places like Oregon, and this is oh. where I think I think Joe has actually changed his tune a little bit, is, like, there used to be that argument of, like, well, make it in small amounts legal, let people do a little bit of it. But what we've seen is a science experiment out there. Um, it's or failing. It's, it's failing, failing miserably. miserably. And we did mm -hmm. a we did a hunting show last year out there, um, Northwest Sportsman Classic or whatever it's called, Pacific, whatever. Um, I, I mean, I could not believe uh, around that convention center the amount of people, you know, camped out in the ditches and, and they were just allowing people, burning tires and mm -hmm. tents and it was just, it was bonkers to me, and it's a beautiful area. And I used mm -hmm. to do a knife show in Eugene, Oregon every year. We would drive through Portland in that area, and it was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, I'm um, I've been over there. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you think about this like idea of legalizing, say, just marijuana or legalizing some of these other drugs to a certain degree? It, it, you know, I, I can guess your opinion, but does it does it make sense at all? Not to me. I don't think legalizing it is the answer at all. And I definitely agree that Portland and Seattle and California have failed their citizens um, by allowing to go on what's gone on and the taxpayers that are having to try to deal and clean up with those messes. Portland looks like a war zone. We were just there last a few months ago for a, um, for a funeral, sadly, of one of my husband's colleagues. And I remember going there for Secret Service working there and stuff. And it's disgusting what's, what's been allowed to happen. And I think by telling kids that it's okay to do it, okay, let's go do it. Maybe right. you would take a kid that wasn't going to do it ever just because of that reason He's a right rule there. follower. Yeah. Right. Like a rule right. follower kid. Right. <clears throat> um, I think that that alone is enough to be like, yeah, I definitely don't think that, um, I definitely feel like it's a gateway to other things. If you talk to just about anybody who's an addict and you ask them where they started, they're going to tell you they didn't... They, Fentanyl wasn't their first stop. Right. They all started smoking pot at right. some point. You know, I definitely am yeah, against it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something, you know, the other argument too is, is like, we've had this war on drugs happening for uh, what, 30, 40 years, 50 right. years. I mean, it's, um, you know, kind of a, a story about my family a little bit. My, my uncles, uh, were, pilots and so they they flew they were uh like crop dusters mm -hmm. so down in kansas and down texas and uh florida uh, a few of my uncles flew small planes and they would spray fields for bugs or weeds or whatever right well my one uncle um and this is probably in the early 90s 
Like, when did the war on drugs, like, down in Venezuela and that area really, like, take off where we yeah, were down there? I want to say, you know, it was Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs. Yeah. Kind of like the 80s, 90s, early yeah. 90s. Yeah. So in the early 90s, he got contracted by the government to go down there and spray cocaine fields. Oh, sure. And uh, um, I remember this well because I remember my dad actually, he had done a few rounds down there, and he was getting escorted in by, like, patchy helicopters or something and mm-hmm. he was spraying these fields and then they would have you know our government would have uh like fuel stations set up for him to land outside of the area that he sprayed fuel up and then get out of the country mm-hmm. and <clears throat> that was kind of the u.s government's way of starting to kind of that you know attack those drugs right on the ground in country right and uh one funny story about it is i remember my dad uh um disguised his voice one time and called him <clears throat> and was like you know, you know, Richard, I know who you are and I know what you do. And he was like doing all this stuff and acting like he was a cartel guy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it freaked my uncle out. And then he was pissed when he found out it was my oh, dad. Because sure. yeah. he was legitimately worried about his family. Because what he right. was doing, like he was killing millions of dollars in drugs. Oh, yeah. That is definitely that not good for his safety. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one of the arguments today that people make is that... um you know, we've just been dumping money into this war on drugs and we're losing. Right. Right. With what we see happening. And my thoughts are on it is, is I'm not so sure we're losing as far as the war on drugs itself. We're losing the control of our border, mm-hmm. which makes it really hard for someone like yourself. If you're the soldier in the fight of war on drugs, but we're allowing the enemy to just flood us. It's pretty hard. Like, it's, right. it's pretty hard to win that war. Right. We definitely have to slow down the appetite for them as well. And I think part of that goes back to family. We don't have, we have such a lack of family anymore. <clears throat> Kids that are being raised in a home that's stable. And um, whether it's a single parent or not, just there's just a lot of kids that are raising themselves. Um, not a lot of involvement in several communities from um, fathers in those kids' lives. Um, sadly, some of the stuff that I, that I also have been doing the last six years is working, um, child sexual exploitation cases and mm-hmm. child sexual abuse, um, what we call, um, CSAM, child sexual abuse materials. Um, so a lot of folks turn to drugs because of things that happened in their past, mm-hmm. abuse, um, things like that. So we need to fix some of those underlying education, um, underlying problems, I think with our society and that might in my opinion, help stop some of that um, want and need or escape. Um, So that I was going to get to the child mm -hmm. stuff, but I back to that soft white underbelly page. The one thing I was going to say about that, every single interview starts with, tell me about your childhood. Mm -hmm. And I, I probably listened to over the, over the last couple of years, I've probably seen 25 of these videos and I, I think I remember one where the guy said, oh, I had an amazing family, um, both parents at home, they worked, they were loving, you know, like right. perfect family, right. the, the perfect life, American dream. Um, I just, you know, kind of was a shitbag. I, I got into, you know, doing some drugs and I went down this track, right? right. And family, no, no fault of the family at all. Right. And- Literally, that's the only one that I heard. Every single other one. And this is where some of my compassion is. And I'm very, uh, I have 
very little to no compassion for like child abuse. Sure. You know, abusers and absolutely child molesters and stuff, but it did definitely give me a little perspective. When you listen to someone interviewed and they say, you know, I grew up, uh, didn't have a dad in the home. My mom had a new boyfriend every other day and they started raping me when I was four years old and I was raped until I was 25 yeah. And I've been abused by every, you know, spouse I've ever had. Mm. And I didn't even know, like, I thought that was, that's just life. That was nor- the norm. Right. And then they started abusing kids when they were, you know, in high school or after. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the one lady that really hit me was, is she had, um, she had had sex with her own son when he was like 10 mm. or nine. And she was distraught about it. And she was actually someone who got, who got caught after that. And she was that person that had been raised that way. And she said, she was always told that's the way you make someone feel better. And her kid was upset about something, throwing a fit about something and just like distraught. And so she did that with him to make him feel better. Mm. And she just thought that was the way that you showed, showed like compassion. And she was actually, I really believe that she was, um, she has been like rehabilitated to the point to once she got caught and then she got put in the system and then she got in with therapists, she kept saying like, she was just distraught. Cause she's like, I ruined his life. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had no idea. Like I ruined his life. Like she just kept saying how terrible she was and how bad she felt and how she wished she could change it all. Yeah. But you can also see how that person never had a chance from like the day that person was born. Mm-hmm. And it's not an excuse necessarily. It's definitely not something you want to excuse people. We need to get those people off the street and whatnot. But to your point, mm-hmm. what terrifies me more than anything with our country is, is I actually don't, if you made me king today, I don't know how I'd fix it. Mm-hmm. Like how do you, um, you know, when my wife was teaching um, middle school in Missoula, which Missoula is really fairly tame compared to a, a lot of big places, but right. the cases that she would see of kids without parents at home and, and just even parents at home, but just shitty parents mm-hmm. and un- uninvolved. And right. um, I don't understand how, and, and to me, I'm bad at math, but I do kind of understand like compounding interest and a mm-hmm. compounding problem. Sure. And I told my wife, what scares me is in five years, all those kids are breeding. Yep. They're having more kids. And are yep. they going to be prepared to be good parents? Sure. Um, they've never been modeled it. Right. <clears throat> and you see so many people that are good people that are deciding not to have any kids or they have one or two. Right. And this these people over here have, you know. As many as well will pay them for. Yeah. Sadly. Um, mm-hmm. or, or kids they don't even know they have. Right. And uh, right. that's what actually terrifies me more than anything is, is like, even if we shut the border off completely mm-hmm. and we shut all drugs off into the country and whatnot, the decay of family within our country mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, I swear like a program that the government should have dump as much money as you can into it'd be like when, when a doctor sees a family come in and have a baby and you can clearly tell like th- there should be somehow free uh like education about how to be a parent mm-hmm. and and being a parent isn't the first six months i mean it's right you have to get it you have to take a test to get a driver's license but to be a parent you just gotta have sex oh, yeah. it just blows me away mm-hmm. and 
And quite, I always tell people, like, if you do a good job of parenting in the first three to five years, mm-hmm. it's kind of like cruise control after that. Like, um, I, you know, I have really good kids. They're not perfect, but we did a really good job in that first three to five years. And then from there, it's like little tweaks here and there. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of at this point raising themselves, kind of like your daughter. I mean, right. you, you have to watch and you have to keep them on the yep. right track. But yep. like, you've done your job. But it's, again, it's a it's a five, six year, like, and it's hard. It's hard. And a lot of these people don't mm-hmm. have the mental capacity. Right. Um, I don't know. I kind of went off on a tangent. No, that's but okay. You, 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 know, hit, you hit something with me yeah. that, that that's what scares me the most because it's, I actually think, not that it would be easy, but if our government wanted to commit to it in a big way, and we as a country just said, we're shutting the goddamn border off. Yeah. We could do it. Yeah. With our sure. technology. We could our military, whatever it took. I agree. We could shut that shit down. We could, you know, you said something about being king. You know, if I were, if I were queen, um, I would revamp our welfare system. If we were king and queen, we'd have some explaining to do to to Jess and not not that way, but you know what I mean? (laughs) So yeah, Craig gets to be king and I get to be queen. So sounds good. Um, so in that way, so I, I think that our welfare system needs to be completely revamped. Um, it shouldn't. We have, we have four generations of folks that have never known anything more than a government handout. Yeah. And literally actively working on how to get more of that. It needs to be redone where you come into the program. This is just my personal opinion, but yeah. you come into the program, um, you're offered education or a trade. Mm-hmm. We teach you that. We get you through school or the trade. And then there's a job placement program. And we get you a job and you feel, start to feel good about yourself and you, what you can do and how much you can earn and how much, you know. And then once you go through that job placement program and you're set, you don't get to come back. Yeah. But until it's kind of like that old adage, you know, you teach a man, um, you give a man a fish, he eats today, you teach a man a fish, he eats for the rest of his life. Yeah. Like if, until we start getting folks to see what they're worth and to, and to know how good that, that feels to be, right. you know, um, taking care of yourself, self-sustaining. Um, some of that would start there. Mm-hmm. I mean, sadly, a lot of the, you know, some of the abuse and the drugs and the stuff that we're seeing, a lot of that comes from low-income, you know, folks that don't have self-worth. Right. And I think if you we change some of that stuff or we just stop handing people stuff right. and they actually have to work for it and then they feel good about themselves with what they've accomplished – that's how you start to change all that stuff. Yeah, and even with some of the homeless stuff, I, I was talking when I was a lineman, I was working down on the street in, in Missoula, and I asked this homeless guy um, a little bit about his story, and he was actually super, uh, like I say, cognitive with it. And he was just like, well, I mean, they, they, they give me free housing. He was like, um, I didn't get the feeling he was a real drugged-out guy or whatever. Like, he, he had his shit together, and he's like, he's like dude, it's, it's pretty fun. Like, we hang out. He's like, I've traveled to a lot of cities. Right. Um, I, I can get a meal anytime I want. Like, he was literally a guy that we could have just put on the crew the next day and been like, hey, you're going to be our grunt. You're going to do, you're going to shovel and do whatever. And 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 he would have been just fine. Like, he could have had a job. But his attitude was kind of like, just, why? I mean, yeah. I'm having fun here. I'm, right. I'm hanging. This is cool. I got my buddies. And, um, you know, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, I want to get back into your career a little oh, bit sure. here. So how do we, you know, you're, you're now in Montana and you've been doing the drug investigation stuff, but then how did you transition over to the, like the child, you know, trafficking stuff, and sure. the human trafficking? So in taking my position here in Missoula, 
um, there's several offices for HSI in Montana, but I was the first HSI agent to be ever stationed in Missoula. And so HSI has a huge um, range of uh, statutory authority that we investigate crimes. So basically your Title 18, Title 21, all your federal statutes, that's kind of what I'm referring to. But HSI does, we have more authority even than the FBI because of our immigration arm. So we can do drugs and um, guns and you know, all the kind of proliferation stuff I was talking about, but one of the things that we are, that we primarily do as well is this child exploitation um, type stuff. And so being the only one person here, you do it. You do whatever comes across your desk. And so I was trying to do everything that we do here, basically. But sadly, there was so much of it coming across my desk. I found myself working that a whole lot more than I was on the drug stuff. I was assisting really? a lot with the drug stuff um, as much as I could passing leads we have some amazing um tools federally at our disposal that i was able to help the local task force with um but um the need was absolutely there for the investigation on the child sexual abuse material so um, mostly child or was it um uh, you know human trafficking even with more with like adults too so you know there is definitely that going on um, most of the stuff that i was working though was tied to children um okay. sadly i didn't it was a few of those cases that I worked, um, but not a ton. There just needed to be more of me, quite honestly, because you can only do so much, yeah. um, sadly, as one person. But that stuff definitely exists, especially in the drug world. Um, yeah. People trafficking girls for drugs and um, that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely the adult work. Um, but I definitely found myself working more the kids' stuff. Um, there are definitely some great local folks that are doing it too, but not enough, sadly, because there's so much of it. Um, it's kind of like the drugs. You would just be shocked at how much of this is out there and what people do to kids. Like, it's awful. And, and some of it is, is produced here, and a lot of it is produced overseas. And then um, with the use of the Internet, it's so prolific on how they share. And then with the dark web is a whole other story of how, you know, the awful stuff you can get associated with the dark web. But yeah, So, yeah, I found myself working a ton of that, those types of cases and crime and, and honestly, it, it, it's pretty rewarding when you're able to pull one of those guys away. Oh, my God, I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, some of the hardest stuff I ever did, ever worked, um, definitely messes with you um, in terms of, you know, what kind of parent you are, concern for your, your own families, your, you know. Your own daughter. Yeah, the kids in the neighborhood, you know. It's just, it's just everywhere, and you just you, you want so badly to tell everyone, you know, don't friend, you know, lock down your Snapchat, lock down, don't be on TikTok, lock down, you know, all your stuff, Instagram, like, you can't just put yourself out there, because literally, even my own daughter, when she was young, <clears throat> she was at a friend's house, and they downloaded an app, and literally within, you know, an hour, there's like 13 older men that have tried to friend her, Yeah. until I, you know, was able to see her phone and lock, you know, shut it off, it's like, it's, they're just, everywhere the predators are everywhere was that a um you know when you kind of transferred from the drug to the child stuff could you just decide to do that or did you kind of put in a request to say like hey I want to focus on this more no I just did it um I since I was the only person with HSI locally they, which they finally officially made this a post of duty so my position will be replaced which okay. is great that was going to be one of my yeah, follow-up questions which is great news for the community yes because it, it's necessary um especially with the the work that we're able to do and what we can investigate. But, um, no, I, so I, I literally was trying to do it all. I was still trying to work some of the drug stuff and work the kids stuff. And, 
But, you know, when you have someone who's got, you know, we seized in one investigation 221 pieces of electronic media that could potentially have, you know, children on it. And you have to go through each one. And you have to, it's insane the amount of time that that takes. Um, We have an office in Denver. um, And we have several specialized agents that are computer forensic agents that assist us with um, at least putting it in a format that's easier to view and sort. Um, but still, I found myself having to go through a ton of that stuff. Um, how, how was yeah. that on you, like, just mentally and, like, mental health-wise? Pretty um, awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was It was definitely um, trying. Um, again, that goes back to, for me, my husband being a special agent, he had worked some of this type of stuff back in Phoenix before he switched over um, to FDA. And so I was able to talk to him about a lot of it. Cause yeah. If you don't find someone to talk to, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, as you can see, I'm already like just even talking about it. It's, it's um, it's some of the most gratifying work that you'll ever do. Yeah. It's definitely some of the most difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, <clears throat> you know, I, I'll be honest. Like, I'm, I might be a little bit heartless, but like, I could kind of care less if some homeless guy shoots a bunch up and kills himself with heroin I mean or whatever it's it's sad but like right. he made his choices and he he did what he did yeah. um but he you know it's it is what it is and mm-hmm. you know that's that's probably kind of harsh to say but it is what it is in my mind um I wish we could fix it and, and whatnot but when you have someone abusing a child that to me um I, I could also see how you would find yourself pushing the drug case to the side and focus like when you see this come across your desk, like it's kind of an easy choice. Oh my God. And if you're the kind of person, like you said, you were that latches onto something. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, I I could find this drug dealer that's dealing, you know, um, you know, meth or try to save this little girl or these kids. Yep. And, uh, to me, that's an easy choice, but also like, I can't imagine how incredibly difficult that was. Sure. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, um, and, you know, sadly, with time, things get, you know, some of the pictures start to fade and some of the, you know, stuff triggers stuff. But that's where, you know, we do have some great programs, too, within um, the agency. Um, I was a peer support member, which is where you can talk with other um, agents. Mm-hmm. They feel more comfortable because they understand, you understand kind of what they're going through, what they're doing. We have special programs specifically for agents that do that kind of work. Um, I was pretty blessed, like I said, because I was able to talk with my husband about all that stuff just because he has the same clearances that I have and he did the work and he, he gets it, he understands. Um, but yeah, definitely, um, you know, people ask me why I retired, you know, because I could have kept going. So they Yeah, keep, you're young. I mean, yeah, they, they kick us out at 57, basically, um, and I'm, uh, I'll turn 50 in May, so I still could have stayed on several more years. But for me, it just was time. Like, I knew... It was starting to take a toll. Yeah. 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 Um, no, and I was going to ask you that because with that being the last thing you've, you've kind of been focusing on mm-hmm. and, and done, um, I also don't know how you would go back. Like, how do, how do you all of a sudden say, well, I'm not going to do child stuff anymore. I'm just going to do the drug stuff when, like you say, a lot of that drug stuff is attached to child stuff. So, sure. So how do you just, like, ignore it? Right. Especially if you're the only, you know, HSI agent in the area that yeah, can work it. Yeah, you can't pass like, yeah, that. Yeah, I can't. You know, there's guys that are a couple hours either direction, you know, that I could say, hey, which is sadly that's who's, 
taking the stuff that I still had that was, you know, somewhat open. There was a couple cases that I had to pass along, and they're going to do a great job with them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and it, it, uh, it was, it's difficult because you can, you can, as an agent, say, I don't, I can't work this stuff anymore. Yeah. But knowing myself, I wouldn't do that. Like, I can't, I can't shut it off. Right. No. That was the way to shut it off. Yeah. The, the other thing geographically with Montana, you know, um, you said Missoula, Kalispell, like Bozeman, Billings, Great Falls, right? For agents. Oh, um, Kalispell, Great Falls, Helena, Billings, and then Missoula's a POD. And they're working on, they had some folks in Bozeman, but I'm working on getting that reestablished, I think, at some point. But yeah. Okay, so like at best. Not like, nearly as at many best, as like six. Mm-hmm. Six in the fourth largest state in the in the nation. Um, and th- the point is, is with the area that you guys have to cover each individually, mm-hmm. you know, from Missoula all the way to, you know, up through, you know, Lincoln, Deer Lodge, you know, out to the Idaho line, um, you know, up north, down south, the Bitterroot. It's like, mm-hmm. it's insane the amount of coverage that one person that you mm-hmm. have to try to manage and then also pick which case is the most important one yeah. and which one do you have to literally, though you know something's probably going on, like right. also not have the, just the bandwidth to focus on. I mean, I could mm-hmm. see how it would consume you. I, I would struggle to let any of them be and so then I would find myself working damn near 24 like, 7 yeah and, and how to have that family balance and 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 shut that off and go watch your your kid play basketball you know yeah um, it was tough I honestly I, I I'm a I wake up in the middle of the night and I I think the best then like so I I would literally I would wake up and I would you know be working on stuff at like two three four o'clock in the morning and it takes a toll you know because you're not getting enough sleep you're not right you know but um you know and and the agency recognizes that there needs to be more people here like they know it they they know the numbers I mean just the numbers I threw up alone for the arrest stats that we that I gave out of here of what we were taking off and what we were doing they're like holy crud you know I met initially with this special agent in Denver and he's like this should be an office of five just in Missoula and I said absolutely it should I'm like yeah you know one for they every know direction. it and yeah. they're trying they're trying to work on that but it's getting you know the government works at such, such a slow pace like trying to get those positions out here because every every even big office is down bodies because we're retiring in droves right now there's a lot of us on that bubble that we're you know so there's a ton of folks I'm sure I don't know the numbers yeah, but we're, if we're also loading people up so much that you're driving people out, you know, five, seven years earlier than they could mm-hmm. uh, because of lack of support or the fact that you just, um, you know, you're, you're literally in an avalanche that you feel like you can't swim out of. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I feel like most people feel like I do in this that, you know, it's very frustrating to write a check for the amount of money and taxes that we write every year. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and it makes you want to evade taxes and try and figure out every way that you can, <laughs> right? And we all hate writing that tax check. But right. that being said, um, that's because we see the amount of waste happening overseas and through the Department mm-hmm. of Defense and, and a lot of this stuff. And, and I'm as I'm as pro-America, pro-military, pro-support mm-hmm our troops guy that there is in and, and okay. our police and fire and, and medical people. Mm-hmm. If I knew my tax dollars were staying home and they were going to secure our border and they were going to hire 
you you know, um, two dozen more agents in every single state in one year, mm-hmm. like just to focus on child stuff right. alone and right. two dozen to focus on drugs. Mm-hmm. And if this was a, if, if you told me that, that the money I was paying today was all just staying here and mm-hmm. it was going to that kind of stuff and sure. we started to see a difference, I would write that check and be proud to do it. Sure. Absolutely. Well, and you have to look at too, even trying to hire individuals to do what we do now because of the shift with the country on part with part of the country, I should say, on um, the support for you know law enforcement mm-hmm. is terrible. You know, back when we first were trying to get hired with the Secret Service, you know, you'd have you know five thousand people apply for one position. Yeah. Now you're lucky if you can fill a couple of positions and that they can pass the polygraph and get through the you know the stuff to get mm-hmm. through the like it's just people aren't seeking out the work because of, I think for several reasons, but I think a lot of it is feeling like they're not, you know, the community doesn't back them, you know? Well, and also, Mm -hmm. you know, frankly, as just a regular American, it's also, you you do at times get caught up. um, And I'm, I'm always, I've always been aware of this. I always am, but you do, when you see stuff that's happening with the way that the FBI is being used on on Mm -hmm. the, on a national scale at the political Mm -hmm. Uh, scale that it's being used and it's being used against political opponents and it feels mm-hmm. like it's become a battering ram for you know the sitting president or the sitting political party or right. whatever right it makes you and it, so it makes people really shit like on that. the FBI right yeah. but but right. I think most people do know that the vast majority of the FBI are, are amazing amazing yeah. individuals yes. that are working their ass off yeah but there's it's just a select few that have really screwed it up for the for the rest of them, and it's, you know, it's, and that's true with, you know, several agencies, but yeah, it's amazing men and women that go to work every day that are trying to do the right thing for the communities, yeah. And the FBI, I I would, I would prefer every single night on the news them to report, hey, FBI agents took down this piece of shit, child, Mm -hmm. you know, trafficker, and, Mm -hmm. and this, this, uh, you know, cartel guy and FBI mm-hmm. took down, the, and you, you rarely hear about that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, right? But you right. hear nonstop about the FBI caught up in, in you know, mm-hmm. Twitter against Donald Trump mm-hmm. or whatever. It's and like, crazy, yeah. Take your political affiliations out mm-hmm. of it. I don't care. Like, mm-hmm. that's not what the FBI should be involved in. Right. Or, and how are you going to hire board patrol agents that want to be babysitters? Yeah. They're not doing what they, well, what and they you know, that's not what they're designed to do. Right. You know, Craig started, my husband started as a Border Patrol agent, and they were out, you know, literally taking grown groups, you know, working in the field, and now they're literally sitting and watching pods of people in, like, those aluminum blankets. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's, they're babysitting, and it's, that's not what they, they hired on to do. That's not, well, literally how are you going to get, in a refugee yeah. camp. and how are you going to, how are you going to encourage people, good people, to want to continue to do those positions? Yeah. Yeah, you're not. No, and you're actually um, with like police officers in general, just a mm-hmm. regular, you know, uh, p- police officer all the way up to the uh, the border patrol agent. You're you're also putting yourself in a real position to potentially be made an example of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sued. You know, if you if you shoot the wrong guy or yep. you you know you, you do the wrong thing, oh, you're gonna get sued. I've been sued twice. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you absolutely have to carry liability insurance. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, both were dismissed, but yeah, it's. And for any reason at all, you know, one, literally it was because they said I was standing nearby. It looked like I was in a position of authority that ordered the arrest, which I did not. I just was standing nearby. But, I mean, I agreed they should have been arrested. This was protesters back in 2004 with Bush. But, um, 
Yeah, you absolutely have to carry that stuff and know that at any time someone can just make up some crazy false claim and your life could be upended. I mean, that lawsuit took three years. Really? And I had to, you know, fly to D.C. for depositions. I had to go to Iowa, which, which is where it initially started. Um, yeah, it that was it's chaos and uh, through no fault of your own. You just showed up for work that day. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So with, with the child stuff, how, um, how is it happening in Montana, like, or, or all around the country and, and what age generally are the kids like that are the, in the most danger that you're seeing being trafficked and traded and stolen. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I also don't hear a lot of cases around here of like, missing child reports or you know the uh what's the alert system uh amber amber alert Mm -hmm. system it's not like that goes off very often sure and usually it's a kid that's been stolen by a parent and they get them back in the afternoon or something but Mm -hmm. why don't you hear about it more on the news why is it not like tonight this you know child is missing and this is what she looked like and how, how is that all working sadly it's not this child is missing it's this child's parent is abusing them yeah. That's, I think, a lot of the reason why you don't hear some of it is because a lot of times it's <clears throat> it's a family member that is, you know, posting these things or doing things to these kids um, or someone that knows them. Um, not always, but a lot of the cases that I've worked, it was a relative that was tied up in some of it. Um, I've Sadly, I've seen all different age ranges from infants to, um, you know, 16, 17 years old. Um, it really just depends on, sadly, on the preference of the predator. Um, but I've worked cases all the whole gambit of, and from, you know, horrible sadistic type abuse to, um, you know, your erotica type stuff where folks are, you know, they start out looking at like, you know, gap swimsuit ads and the next thing you know, they're down the rabbit hole of awfulness. Um, but truly, sadly, I've seen every, every type and age group, um, and, and every type and, um, and predominantly I've worked men, predators, there are women predators for sure. I just have not worked those specifically myself here. Um, but definitely know they exist. Kind of like you were talking about with the woman with her son. Um, but the, and the age range though, it truly has varied from, you know, like early 20s to, you know, 70 years old. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and now to, um, they're getting more active here locally, trying to do like to catch a predator type stuff. Yeah. Um, which is great. Good. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it truly, yeah, it just depends on, um, but the internet really has, and especially stuff overseas, I think that's more of where the missing um, kids uh, is where you see a lot of that. And some of it is kids here that are taken and trafficked. And But mostly, most of the stuff that I've worked here was either stuff from overseas um, or it was a family member. What's the stuff from overseas? Is it more like just um, like like photos and stuff being shared or is it? All different people um, being actually like taken and taken overseas, or people actually being taken and abused. Um, Really? Yeah. Where you know, um, I mean, there are some horrible sites where literally, like, men or or someone, anyone, can like pay to have someone abused live, and like they they basically pay money and watch to have the child abused. Are you serious? Yeah. Um, God damn. It's disgusting. What humans have done to one another like and what they think is okay but yeah um so literally they're, and they're doing it live and they're paying live whether it's with you know um some kind of a cryptocurrency or you know um cash app or really yeah and it's does uh, it make it really incredibly hard for you guys to trace sometimes 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely has its challenges, but there is a huge, um, within HSI, even though there's just one of me here, there's thousands of me that do what I do on our job. Yeah. And so, excuse me, they, um, we all communicate through our listserv and, and, um, if you're not sure how to work something or do something, you just put out the, Hey, who's got to go by, who knows this. And then within literally minutes you have, you know, several answers. It'll help you kind of, and that's how I learned to do it. Like I, to work on this stuff cause I didn't really have a huge background in it cause I knew myself, I really didn't want to do it. <laughs> like I, I just knew that it would be hard for me to work. Yeah. And, um, but when I got here, it was me, it was, it. I was it. So I'm like, okay, well, here we go. So as you know, you start to work, you need help. Like, and I've, you know, I've had a, you know, there's a, a few local folks that do it with the, the county and with the PD, great individuals. And then um, the FBI touches on it a little bit um, here, but primarily, yeah, it was federally, I was primarily one of the main only ones working in this area doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, except for we have some ICAC folks do it, Internet Crimes Against Children. So, but it, everyone works together. Yeah. Which is a great little tight knit community, but definitely need more help. Mm-hmm. When, when Craig told me you were working on this particular kind of stuff, I, <clears throat> it shocked me because, um, no offense, but like, you don't seem like some, some like badass person that like, like that, uh, and not even the badass part, but more of like, I envision people that do that being like almost like cold and like, sure. like able to really turn it off, turn it off and, and, yeah. and compartmentalize their emotions and almost like a, like I envision a guy that's just super stoic and super hard, cold, like, yeah, yeah, it's part of the job, you know? And, and I, you are like the sweetest person that you could ever meet. And like when Thank I you. was dealing with your daughter and with you guys, when, you know, our kids were younger and stuff, like, um, you, you couldn't find like a sweeter person and to see, to even just imagine that somebody like you with your personality and your, um, you know, I, I could see somebody like you working, you know, the investigations on guns and drugs and some of that stuff. And mm-hmm. like, I, I would find that stuff myself more almost like interesting mm-hmm. if I was working on it, I wouldn't take a lot of the drug stuff and a lot of that, like personally, it would just sure. be like a fun puzzle to try to solve. But then when you involve children, like that's to me when it would all change. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I would not personally be able to, um, I would find it, I would be way too emotional. Yeah. And I would also find myself probably do something very illegal. Like. <laughs> sure. I yeah. Take it's a matter, it's, cause how it's is hard it? to turn it off. And you know, it's, I don't know. Have you seen The Sound of Freedom? Uh, no. So it is a movie about an HSI agent that works this type of stuff primarily overseas. Um, there's a scene in the movie where he, the lead character, is sitting in an interview with a predator, and he's basically kind of tries to let the predator know that he gets it, he understands why he does it, and he um, he turns his compassion on and, and basically gets that predator to know and, and to be comfortable, you know, with telling him about what he did. And, and that, is, that is a gift that you have to be able to have when you're going to sit down and speak with someone and try to get them to confess to some of the most disgusting, heinous things you could ever imagine. And that is definitely one of the most difficult things that you do in this position. And it's not, you know, um, Lord knows I've done it a couple times, more than that, um, where you 
you sit with someone and you try to make them understand or believe that it's okay that what they did and why they did it. And you understand. And mm-hmm. You know, she came on to you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like almost acting in a role, you know, so to speak. Um, but then when you get what you need. Right. You know, but then to go out of there, there's a scene in the movie afterwards, he's like washing his face and like trying to cleanse himself because he just can't, you know, that's real. Like you feel dirty. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. What about the, um, <clears throat> I would imagine also you've had plenty of cases where you couldn't solve them. You couldn't, you, like, mm-hmm. frankly, you failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? For whatever reason, whether it's a, it's, um, they do a really good job of covering their tracks or, right. or there's attorneys involved that get them off. Right. What is that like when you know you have to move on from a case and you know you have them, you had them, yeah. but you couldn't close the deal? Super frustrating. Yeah, it's only happened a couple of times um, over the course of my whole career. Um, and I'm pretty proud of that. But yeah, there are times where, yeah, there's just nothing else you can do. Um, and it is hard to move on because you've invested, you know, sometimes years mm-hmm. looking into something and whether it's, you know, um, the attorney's office won't prosecute or, you know, which is typically why a lot of stuff closes. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we have a great group of folks here. I've been very successful working with our individuals here locally. They've been tremendous. Um, you bring them a good case and they're going to do what they're supposed to do, which is, which is part of the whole battle. But yeah, yeah I'm, def- I'm friends with, you know, Kirsten Pabst oh, okay. here and, and sure. um, mm-hmm. Uh, or friendly, we were closer sure. before, but just sure. life, we're just busy. But um, mm-hmm. I feel like she's the kind of person, like, you, you bring the right thing to her, she's going to try to go after it with. But but she's also short-staffed, sure. short-handed with. Yeah, they are very short-staffed. And I was more speaking on a federal level, because most okay. of them, almost all my cases went federal. Oh, okay. Um, very few went, went to the state level. Um, just because that's, you know, I'm being a federal agent, that's where primarily my stuff went to. Um, but yeah, no, I've been, I've had some great, um, associations with the local county attorney's office as well. Some great folks that work over there. Yeah. But definitely from a federal level I've been, and, and not, um, you know, everyone has a job to do. Everyone has their, you know, but in every, in every city, it's not always like that. You don't always have the backing and the support of, you know, um, those folks and, and, and truly the thresholds, especially even on a drug level are a lot different in Montana than they are in say Phoenix, you know, yeah. what they'll even look at, what you can even bring in the door. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like a lot of stuff you deal with here might be child's play down there and they're like, it's not even worth our time. Right. But in, but in our area, because of our population and what it really does affect our community. Yes. Even if it's pounds versus kilos because of what, you know, that yeah. can do to our community. But yeah, so it's definitely been very different in terms of that was a kind of a big curve that I had to learn like, Oh, they're going to take that. Excellent. Like, and then we also have this thing here called um, project safe neighborhood. Um, there's a similar um, thing for the um, child crimes where um, basically individuals that um, have a violent nexus as well as the drugs get placed on this list basically that we, and that they become high priority targets. And then um, when the U S attorney's office is looking at who, you know, is going to go federally and that kind of stuff, those folks get, you know, placed higher on the list of, and, and then we bring those cases to them and we all just sit and talk about it as a group. So when these people get prosecuted, how effective do you think our federal prison system is at, um, whether it's rehabilitating, um, you know, cause it seems like 
we also have, <clears throat> you know, from an uneducated standpoint, it feels like we have a really soft system where people go into jail, they go into prison, they do their time. And like, we have so many people that are frequent flyers there that it makes me think like, if it was a way worse situation, if prison was a lot worse, we'd have a lot of people not like motivated to not go back. Yeah, no, I agree. I definitely feel like um, one of the things I definitely noticed here is that folks that were getting arrested locally and going through the county system for the drugs, it was like a revolving door in and out, in and out, because they're constantly putting them in different programs or that they wouldn't show up for. I mean, they knew. Mm-hmm. But when the feds came in and this PSN started, the Project Safe, Neighbor- Safe Neighborhood started, they were getting real time. And they were like, oh, crap. Yeah. Like, we're actually going to jail, like real jail. Yeah. It makes a difference to yeah. them. Whether they came out on the other end, okay, I don't know that they wouldn't go back to the same stuff. Um, most of your child predators, I don't know that there is rehabilitation for that. Yeah. Um, I'm a supporter of, ed- of execution, frankly. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it's hard <laughs> not. I'm not kidding. It's hard, it's hard not to, um, especially when, when, you're, when you see some, some of the really bad stuff, absolutely. It's definitely hard not to feel that way. Um, you know, you would like to hope that folks can change and that, but sadly, and even in, mm-hmm. even in the prison system, you know, you get a whole bunch of child molesters, they put them in the same pod to protect them because if they're in gen pop, you know, Jen Pop's going to take care no, of them. No, I, so I, I feel like we then, should feed the murderers <laughs> those people, like a shark right. tank. Yeah, it's um, it's it's truly, yeah, I definitely, our our um, prison system needs to be revamped in several ways, too. It's just, a, it's sadly, if you if you look at society as a whole, it's just depressing sometimes. I, like, it's, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a lot of empathy for certain people, certain things. I think people can got, get caught up in certain situations, whether sure. it's, Someone going to prison on tax evasion. If someone goes to prison because they 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 beat someone to death because they got angry or you know so, some, whatever happens, like mm-hmm. I think young kids can commit a crime and they can be robbing a store and the next thing you know they shoot the clerk and right. you can be nineteen and ruin your life. And I think you can come out of prison rehabilitated yes. in a lot yeah. of these situations. Like yeah. I, I think you can go do your time, learn your lesson. Um, and I'm sure different prisons have different success rates at that. Um, I do not believe there is any form of, well, I shouldn't say a hundred percent. There probably is a percentage of child abusers that could be rehabilitated, but I feel like the percentage of success of that is not worth to me letting any of them back out. I mean, I, I have no, and I, and I was talking about that YouTube channel I watched and I don't, I want to make sure I make it clear, like, there's a difference between understanding how someone got to be where they are. Sure. But that doesn't mean that I have any empathy or or hope for that person beyond that point. Sure. Like when you've gone down that road, mm-hmm. that's a that you don't come back from that. Right. And there might be one or two that like that gal, like I do mm-hmm. I feel empathy for her life sure. and the way that she grew up. She was not she did not choose to be born into that situation. Right. That was just but Would terrible. I ever let her around my kid? No. Oh, no. Yeah. <clears throat> no. And that and that's the point, right, is like um, I have zero empathy for those people, and I feel like they should be locked up forever, if not, like I say, just flat out taken out of this world. Um, right. I just, I just have zero empathy. Yeah. But that's just me, and I don't um, – you know, no, I have hard. four, and, four and kids, it, and, and it, I can't imagine. Yeah, well, especially when you have to tell the victim, like, you know, I have a case right now 
and this was no fault of the U.S. Attorney's Office. This was the judge um, that was presiding over the case. You know, he got a super minimal sentence, um, and the judge's, you know, response was, well, he wasn't hands-on. Well, the charges that we had in Montana, he wasn't hands-on, but the judge knew that he was hands-on with a relative in California, but we could only charge what we had here in this instance. And so the judge gave him a lighter sentence based on, and I'm like, but he had read the reports, he knew that, and I'm like, yes, yes, he is. We know he is. So then what do I have to go back and say to that victim that he was hands-on with? And to get that victim to testify and right. to go through that. But in California, they probably wouldn't have even taken the case. I couldn't even get a restraining order until we could get him in custody in California. Really? It was nuts. Yeah. They're definitely, I'm glad we live in Montana. I guess is part of the, that's part of the reason we're here. I mean, I, I definitely feel like there are certain things that, um, you know, my husband and I are definitely leaning more on the conservative side of things. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself in the middle on some issues, but um, but there are definitely certain reasons why I can't live certain places. Portland would be one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. sadly, I can't. Yeah, you know, I don't want my family <coughs> exposed to like open drug open air drug markets and. You know, there's, how is that okay? Your kids walk into school and they have to, you know, yeah. walk over some hype and try not to step on a needle. Like, it's crazy what they have allowed. California was the same way. I was in Sacramento for one of the cases that we had that was tied to here. Tents everywhere, drugs everywhere, zombies everywhere. It's like, how how do you let this happen? How, how, have, you f- how have you found... How have you been able to be a parent of a of a beautiful young girl, mm-hmm. um, teenager, now? Um, how how with what you know and what you've seen and experienced every day, have you not allowed that to in an over? I mean, I'm sure you have allowed it to affect the way you parent, but like in a way that you're not over the top, like ruining her life sure. based on what you're seeing. Sure. Um, and how do you let, how have you let her be her own kid and be a kid and go to friends' houses and have That's a tough. phone and mm-hmm. to do all the things that, you know, because I frankly, and most people live in this oblivious world mm-hmm. and I know it's dangerous and I feel mm-hmm. like I'm somewhat aware. And I probably more than most people have talked to my daughters about, you know, when you park at a gas station, you know, watching where you're at and parking Mm -hmm. in a lit area. And if there's someone lingering by your car, like messing Mm -hmm. with their keys in their car, just stay in the store and let them leave. Right. You know, like trying to be aware, Mm -hmm. but like, how how have you been able to parent through that? Sure. Well, she's our third. So we had a little bit of practice with the older two, but the internet wasn't as prolific as it is now. Yeah. And back then you also weren't working the kids. I wasn't working the kids stuff. I wasn't. Yeah. And now truly with it's, you know, she would probably say that I, you know, am overbearing and over, but she does, you know, we just communication, like we just sit and talk about stuff and, and we, um, you know, all of our stuff is locked down as best as, you know, it can be at least, seemingly is from every time I look at it and um but we just talk we talk about what's out there what's scary what's you know I hope that she doesn't ever go down that road you know of of trying a drug or trying or you know god forbid starts talking to somebody on snapchat that she doesn't know Mm -hmm. um because it can happen to any any of them like even your son you know Mm -hmm. that's the thing like um so many so many young men are falling prey right now so literally the country of Nigeria and the Ivory Coast have like call centers like 
business offices where literally all they do is sit online and try to extort our children and, and our older folks. Uh, it's like, that's like the, their job. Yeah. And literally, you know, they call it sextortion. They pretend that they're, you know, say it's <clears> for your son. They pretend that they're a 14, 15-year-old female. They get... That just um, happened here in Frenchtown, unfortunately. Yes, sadly. Um, they get, you know, um, they send pictures. They have your child send pictures. And then they start, you know, extorting you for money, saying that who they really are and that what they're going to do. And it's it's devastating. And it was devastating here in our community, too. And that is happening so much here. And there's, yeah, and, and there's, and not, and a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of recourse. They're trying with Nigeria more because they're having being a little bit more successful, but like literally them on the Ivory Coast is they're just inundating us with scheme after scheme after scheme after scheme. And if you aren't talking to your kids about that stuff so easily, if we don't keep talking about it and telling our kids what's out there, what to watch, what to be careful for, that's how easily could they become, you know, thinking, oh, this super hot chick, you know, because they literally with AI and all the software and stuff, yeah. they send these pictures of these beautiful you know young girls that they think is oh this chick's super into me she lives in the next city over you know they have no idea yeah i think mm-hmm. i think joe actually just posted a an ai video of a like a i mean this girl's as beautiful as can be and looks mm-hmm. as real as can be i mean looks like a supermodel mm-hmm. um gal and uh it's it's like literally impossible to to really tell especially for a normal person right. i think it's important to be for parents a little bit more detailed on this and obviously we'll keep the name and the family out of it but for people to understand a little more like this particular kid you know um you know essentially what they're doing is is they're messaging say a a young you know 15 16 year old boy and essentially they get them to send them like a nude or something like Mm -hmm. that and and the boy does it he thinks he's sending it to this hot girl and you know Texas, it's not going to matter or whatever. They're just being stupid kids back and forth. Right. And what ends up happening is, is then these people come back and they say, this is who I am. And I'm going to post this picture of you. And I'm going to, I'm going to message all of your friends. Um, I actually just had a deal here lately where uh, a buddy of mine who's like in his forties uh, texted or, you know, called me and was like, Hey, have you gotten any pictures? And he's like, I've got these people saying they've got these nudes of me or whatever. And he's like, it's not a me or whatever, but mm-hmm. they were, they were telling him that they were, they were going to send them to all of their friends, all their business contacts. And I mean, he was really worried about his business stuff. Sure. And I was like, no, I haven't gotten anything, but with this boy um, or boys like, like this kid locally, um, they say, I'm going to, I'm going to show all your friends these pictures and I'm going to, you know, all this stuff. And so then they want money and, they want paid off and you know a lot of times these kids don't have the money to pay or whatever and you know ultimately this kid ended up taking his own life and instead Mm -hmm. of going to his parents and saying I've gotten myself into this situation and this is where parents need to not just talk to their kids about hey there's bad people out there and there's bad people doing things but like no I think it's very important I've told my kids this no matter what it is and how mad you think we might be at you for doing stupid shit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the equivalent of, of telling your kid, you know, like your kid, for example. Let's say she goes somewhere and she smokes weed somewhere and she knows. I mean, her parents are freaking drug agents. Right. They're going to be pissed and they're right. going to want to beat her to death. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you're going to deal with it and you're going to move past it and be fine. Yes. 
but you would rather her call you and say, you need to come get me. Absolutely. I've drank or I've done pot or whatever. Absolutely. And this is the same equivalent where you need to encourage your kids to say, hey, you've done this. This is an example. This kid sent this nude. He's being blackball or uh, uh, blackmailed. Um, you need to come tell us and we will help you deal with it. Right. Because... And yeah, you're going to be in trouble and we're going to take your phone away and it might be, it might even be embarrassing if these people post these photos of you online, but you know what? You're 15. Who gives a shit? You're going to move on. And the chances of them doing that are like so nil. It's not. Just ignore them. Yes. They're not doing that. They're Mm -hmm. not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where you also need to tell your kids like, they're not actually going to do it. Mm -hmm. But even if they do, it's not the end of the world. Right. It's going to be embarrassing. Right. Your kids, your buddies are going to make fun of you a little bit and you're going to move on. Um, but the point is, is kids need to feel like they can come tell their parents and, and their parents are going to help them through the situation. Right. In, instead of what ended up happening here was, you know, a really good kid took his life. Sadly. And it's Mm -hmm. sad. Well, Um, and sadly kids all over the country are doing the same, you know, committing suicide and it's awful. Um, but yeah, it's, you know. And they're targeting good kids that, that, that end up doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. Because um, they're just fearful and ashamed, and it's terrible. Like, yeah, I, I had a case here locally where the um, sex torture was actually in London, and he was pretty prolific. He had he did terrible things to the girls that he was talking to, and, and there's several girls around the country, honestly, and he would have them carve themselves up and do awful things, just awful. And um, ultimately, we were able to get him in custody, and he's in jail now in London. But for the awful crimes that he did and what we were able to prove, they only gave him 10 years hmm. because they don't look at it as sternly as we would here for something that we were able to prove of what he did. Um, but, yeah, and, and that was one of the things, you know, one of the threats that he made is I'm going to post all this. I know what's because they get they find all your information. They know what school you go to. They know what, so he's like, I'm going to post, you know, all these things, that I, horrible things that I made you do to yourself online on you know on your school website i'm going to send it to your parents i'm going to send you're you're going to get taken away from your parents because your parents did a terrible job and cps is going to come child protective services is going to take you away because i was able to do this to you and you let it happen and so you're never going to see your parents again right that's the kind of stuff this guy was saying never going to see their parents right exactly and so the fear that this person was instilling into this victim was awful um and that's the kind of stuff these kids are dealing with online because they send a booby shot, you know, right. or a dick pic or whatever. And it's right. so distressing that, yeah, and it's definitely, like you said, talking to your kids and letting them know, like, no matter what it is, we're going to get through it in a month. It ain't going to matter. Like, and, and your the kid, safety the kids here looking at is it, like, more important. They're falling on their grenade. Exactly. And exactly. they don't need to do that. They don't need to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually talked to your husband here this is a few months ago, but I listened to an episode on the Sean Ryan show. Uh, they had a guy on there that was, uh, they call him the ethical hacker. Mm. Henry, will you look up that ethical hacker with Sean Ryan show? Um, that, uh, that episode, and if you find the episode number, I'll even say it on here. That episode is probably the episode that bl- has blown my mind the most of like anything I've ever listened to. I was mm. blown away. And this guy started off hacking as a kid, teenage kid, doing computer stuff or whatever, and was kind of got to the point where he was starting to be asked to do some things that was like, he was doing some illegal stuff, but then like he started like, got to the point where like, 
he was asked to do a few things that he, he thought was like, okay, this is over the line. Pulled back from it. And then he started doing hacking stuff more in a legal way where you're like working for companies and, you know, companies will pay, you know, Apple or sure. you, you name the place will pay uh, potentially millions of dollars if you can hack into their system and tell them how you did it. Right. They will pay you to so do they that. They can stop it yeah. from somebody else doing it. Yep. And so this became his career. And I mean, it was mind blowing. He was sitting there with Sean and uh, uh, he acted like into Sean's Wi-Fi just sitting right there. And he was wow. showing how he can, uh, you know, go into a Starbucks and uh, set up uh, 25 fake Starbucks Wi-Fis. And so then, you know, you come in to do your work you log into what you think is Starbucks Wi-Fi and you're logging right into his computer. And sure. uh, at one point in his life, he had thousands of computers across the country, all mining Bitcoin for him wow. on their computers from their homes. And they didn't know wow. he can take over computers pretty much anywhere. Right. I mean, it's absolutely mind blowing. I mean, it's pretty incredible how good someone like that is. Okay. What's his name? Ryan Montgomery. Yeah. So <clears throat> this guy was at a dinner party and one of the moms had uh, heard about this um, trafficking ring or something, this website happening there locally. And she told him about it and was like, you know, is there anything you can do about this? And so he, it like triggered him and he immediately said he left the party. He went home. He got into the back end of that website and what he saw was like just blew him away. Mm. And mm -hmm. so uh, then he started like getting into this stuff where he was just like, it was just his hobby to get in and try. At first he was trying to like shut sites down or shut mm -hmm. people down. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he even said some of these sites uh, you, you would have to answer questions and I'm sure you know this, but like mm -hmm. to get membership, you had to answer questions. And he even listed things like they would ask you, here's a picture of a, of an 11 year old girl. What would you do to her if you, if you had her for a night mm -hmm. and you had to like, and he said he would try to gain entry into these sites sometimes like the, like the more legit way that a, a member would. And he mm -hmm. would get to a place where like he had to say, he's like, well, I can't, I can't, I can't answer that. Like mm -hmm. I can't, like, even sure. for what I'm doing, I can't even imagine that. And so, like, right. he would try to figure out other ways to get into it. But he ended up hacking into this site and got the list of the contacts of every single member in the site. Nice. And, you know, frankly, he was doing it in what turns out in an illegal way. But then he started going to the authorities saying, I have a list of members of the site, including right. members of Congress, Jeez. House of Representatives. Yeah. Sure local, whether it was local, uh, you know, government authorities, like here's a list. Sure. And these people wouldn't, couldn't do anything with it, wouldn't do anything with it. And so mm -hmm. then he started setting up stings where he was going in and he was starting to act like a girl and he would set up these stings and then they would do like, try to do like citizens arrest or then he would contact the authorities and be like, no, I literally have a 35 year old guy coming to meet an 11 year old girl, like at Walmart, like, right. And they made some arrests, but he found it very, very frustrating because sure. he literally has the ability to hack all of these sites. Sure. And I, so I asked Craig about it, yeah. your husband, you know, yeah. and I was like, how is, you know, how are the feds not grabbing a guy like that? Or, and I'm sure the feds have their own people that have those same abilities. Sure. 
how are we not doing that? And he's like, man, you know, as much as we'd like to, like, he's illegally obtaining this information. He is, which is, which is when you come to prosecution, that's where the problem therein lies. Because the defense is going to utilize that, and then it will get the case tossed. So if he could get signed up somehow as a legitimate informant for an entity, whether it's the FBI, HSI, um, then it would be a different story because he would be working at the best of them. Now, with his background, would he still even qualified to be that individual that is you could officially sign up um, to gain that information? It's not that we don't want the information or want to use it because we absolutely do. It's how can we utilize it and actually get a prosecution out of it. Yeah. And it's the constraints that are placed on us by, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the laws that we have to follow. But it de- definitely it sounds like, you know, hopefully someone is, I don't know what city he's in, but is, is sitting down with him. And somehow if he's willing to be, you know, to share that information and do what he's doing with them, get him signed up the right way so they could utilize that information. I would pray but, that yeah. somebody, is do, somebody is doing that with him. Because when, yeah. I, when I told Craig, I said, well, this is what, and this is kind of leading into a question I have for you, but like this is what bothers me. If if it's against the law, well, then change the goddamn law. Right. Like, I, and I you know, I'm all about people's personal, like I think you as an agent should have to catch like a drug dealer or someone running guns or doing whatever in a, like, I think there should be limitations in how you're able to obtain information. And, you know, it's like you look at the Patriot Act and how it got some some abuses of it. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, was it, you know, what are the intentions? But then like, are there bad actors or is it, is it then used? It's such a useful tool that needs to stay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to ask you about it. But the point is, is I think there's certain crimes and stuff where there should be like a, uh, like a Smokey and the Bandit, like Fair Chase. <laughs> right, right, right. But when it comes to child stuff, yeah. I don't care how you yeah. obtain that information, right. especially when it's coming from a website like that. Mm-hmm. Like, do I think that the government should be able to go uh, tap every person's phone in Montana mm-hmm. and listen to every conversation just to catch child predators? No. Like, I think there should right. be, you know, right. the right way to do things. Sure. When you When you're talking about a website full of, it's it's a, p- a cesspool sure. of shit people. I don't care how you get that information. Yeah, go get it. Right, and then and then prosecute every single one of them. And I think the key is just getting him into a position where he's actually working directly with an agency at the time he's doing that. And I would hope like he, though, if these agencies hear that interview, there is yeah. somebody that's powerful that's calling that guy, going, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to get you to the front of the line. We're going to get you involved. Right. Um. And you're, or it's something that he's willing to share the skills he's learned to teach someone, even if he's with his background and history, not knowing anything about mm-hmm. that. If he's someone who's not testifiable, like they, they would not, he would not be able to um, pass a test. Like we're basically like, like if I lie or if I've committed crime or if I, like I'm not um, a worthy person that can get up and testify and swear that I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, because I've been proven in my past to not be worthy of that. Yeah. So if this guy though, is willing and, you know, wants to help in that realm or, but he's not able to testify. Maybe he could teach the individuals that, that are right. how to do what he's doing or, or sit there with them and do it. They could do it together, so to speak. There's yeah. ways around it. Sure. It just depends on how far he's willing to go to give up the information he has and how he's doing stuff. Yeah. Um, and how willing he is to work with the entities, at least the way it, the system works currently. But it, it sounds to me from, from what I heard on that podcast, and this is what I kind of want to ask you about is, it sounds like some roadblocks have been putting up 
were put up is because of also who's on those lists. Mm-hmm. And I wonder with government, we see what happened with the Epstein case mm-hmm. and the powerful names that are on those lists. What did you find in your career or did you see times or, or were you involved in stuff where you felt like there was somebody potentially involved in the case that it was, it was being roadblocked or shut down because there's somebody too powerful potentially that could fall. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. I'm just trying to think in my, if I've come across anything like that where I, I felt like we were shut down for a reason. And I, there, I don't believe myself personally that I worked a case that had a high-profile individual like that where we would have, because I would have kept fighting for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't had that specific experience. Um, not to say that it wouldn't potentially happen in this individual's circumstance. I don't know. Um, but it, it is interesting, though, um, you know, definitely a, uh, as far as conspiracy theories go, I mean, I definitely see what you're saying. But I I would hope that if, you know, with this guy's abilities and to do what he can do, that that would trump, you know, what who's on the list. Yeah. You know, sadly, because um, I'm not shocked there are individuals that are, you know, in high places that well power mm-hmm. i mean power mm-hmm. power yeah. and money thinks makes you exactly. think you can get away with anything i mean sadly did, did you guys discuss much just even as agents yourselves or did you even discuss more in a formal capacity the the stuff that happened with like the epstein case and how that was allowed to to go unchecked so long and you know yeah i didn't really talk with just because i'm you know doesn't have a ton of time to even talk about that stuff you know with other folks but mm-hmm. it is it is sadly disgusting um what was allowed to occur there and for how long it was mm-hmm. um and i not knowing any of the individuals that worked on those cases or you right. know um but super glad that eventually it has you know come to um, the truth has come out yeah and i would hope that any of the other individuals that were tied in that they meet the same justice and are arrested and yeah. prosecuted because yeah, there's just no excuse for that yeah. kind of disgusting behavior. Why did you say that about the, what, what's your view of the Patriot Act? Because I know it's definitely oh, gotten um, yeah. scrutiny. Well, there's there's definitely some tools and some and some stuff there that's necessary. And sometimes, you know, um, and I'm not super familiar with it word to word, but just in my work with the Terrorism Task Force, there are certain things that in certain ways that we need to be able to do stuff surreptitiously or be able to gain access to things. Otherwise, we're, we're never going to win. We're not going to catch the bad guys that we need to catch because of the limitations that we place upon ourselves. But, you know, sadly, are the people that, you know, do stuff they shouldn't be doing, well, then we need to weed them out too because right. that's not okay. But right. we need those tools to take down the, the bad guys because they're not playing by the rules. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's the unfortunate thing is we, I mean, it is, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. We mm-hmm. should have rules of engagement and... and you know, like even in war, you know, mm-hmm. with the way that we conduct ourselves, like we should conduct ourselves at a higher standard, right. even when it's really, really difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> we should also not limit ourselves to the point where we we make ourselves eventually victims of mm-hmm. crimes we could have stopped, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. No, how do you, sure. how do you think you, I mean, it's only been, <laughs> it's been a week, <laughs> you know, this transition from, doing what you were doing to being retired and stepping away from it. 
Yeah. How how has that been in a week, and how do you what do you anticipate anticipate that to be like? Sure. You know, really, even last week, I was like turning in my car and stuff, so it's not like I, I feel like I haven't even maybe a day. It's kind of like I've stepped away, but just from it, um, you know, that's a good question. I think I'm going to take a month or two to kind of just slow down, take a breath. Um, I'll do definitely, um, you know, as you know, I'm a pretty engaged parent and, and, uh, my daughter's extremely active and, and, um, I love being a wife and a mother and all that stuff too. And I definitely want to spend more time with them and, um, maybe, you know, cook a meal that requires a recipe and has more than four ingredients in it, yeah. you know, stuff like that. But, um, I definitely, I, I don't see this as the end really. Um, one of my hobbies that I kind of started doing when I was working the child predator stuff, cause I, you know, trying to get my mind off of all the awfulness and the pictures in my head, I started doing, um, a home staging business. And so, um, I love to decorate. And so oh. I found myself, you know, um, doing some of that work too, which was chaos, trying to work and do all that. And, mm-hmm. but, um, so I kind of haven't done much of that this last year. I did more the year before, but might start doing some of that kind of stuff, but I don't know. I've, contemplating maybe doing even some consulting. I really um, am passionate about the work that I did, um, and I don't know if this is the end of that. Maybe just do it in a different way um, and see maybe, um, just like I said, some consulting and work for some folks that are trying to, you know, make a difference and help them out. And I don't know. I just, I'm not really sure. I haven't really kind of just going to take a breath for a minute and yeah. I know um, Andy Stumpf, who has the Cleared Hot podcast up in Kalispell, has had a couple people on that are more on the civilian side trying to help out with, like, mm-hmm. a lot of the child mm-hmm. crime stuff. Sure. Trafficking. Um, do you envision yourself potentially helping some of those groups, even on the civilian side at some point? Yeah, that is. I definitely haven't ruled it out. As much as it was, you know, difficult cases to work, you definitely make a difference in people's lives. So I haven't ruled that out at all. You know, I want to kind of see how, how the next few months, you know, just once I get away from it all and how I feel about it, but yeah, we'll see. I definitely, maybe in that capacity, you wouldn't be necessarily put in the position to, you know, sure. Look at photos and investigate to to the degree that sure. Like, and that's really what, that's really what gets you over. What got me is the images and the, and the sounds. Yeah, that's the stuff that that is hard to go away. But um, but definitely being, you know, one on one with a victim and able to talk, you know, and and help them through some Mm -hmm. of the stuff they've gone through and and help trying to track, you know, down folks that way. That would be. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm not sure. And it might be too deep or you you feel free to not answer. But, you know, I I see our with our military guys, with our veterans, you know, they go through what they go through Mm. and then they retire. They they get out, um, you know, whatever. And it feels like they're just kind of like kick loose into the wind, yeah. right? And they're not supported as as uh, well as we should support them with, um, you know, with like therapy and stuff like that. Sure. Do does your agency support you guys with that when you're when you're active? And then also, is that available to you after, like now, like and you know, do you seek that? Do you is it is it helpful to go and and talk with someone even after retirement for a while? Sure with some of that leftover trauma. Right. Yeah. So, um, when you're in, there is definitely some stuff that you can seek out if you choose through our employee assistance program. There's definitely Mm -hmm. some good stuff there. Um, but once you leave, yeah, there's really, I mean, we have great insurance and we get to keep our federal health insurance, which isn't 
excellent benefit of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but unless you seek it out yourself, yeah, there's no one, no one's pretty calling. On your yeah, you're pretty much. But, you know, in all honesty, I'm definitely a firm believer in the more I talk about stuff, the more it's, it's healing for me. Yeah. Like I definitely see myself seeking out some of that. Um, and like I said, you know, I'm super blessed. My husband's amazing. And I, I talk a lot with him about stuff. Yeah. Um, definitely. Do you have any contact and this might be inappropriate as a, as an agent, but may, maybe not like, do you, do you have any contact with any of the victims that you helped rescue or save or, um, you know, you know, going forward, do you ever, do you ever develop a relationship with those people where, you know, maybe you get a kid out of a situation and she's now 23 and has her own kid. Sure. Mm. Um, we don't, we don't, I don't, um, it's not that I wouldn't want to necessarily, but I don't know. We have victim assistance specialist folks that are the folks that are um, primarily in that role to help people through that stuff. And it's really not appropriate for me to reach back out. Right. I could end up causing more trauma if, sure. depending on, you know, where they are in their process or what, you know, I would never want to do that. Right. Um, but definitely have I wondered, you know, where someone was or how they're doing or, you know. Yeah. Um, and every once in a while, there was a couple of cases I had reached back out to the victim assistance specialist and said, hey, have you heard from so-and-so what's going on in their life? And and they would let me know if they still knew. Um, but, yeah, typically I wouldn't. Um, it's, it's not something that I would do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one piece that I'm not sure that, you know, you, you probably even can – you know, you have, I'm sure so much going on that you've seen and in your head and stuff, but the one piece that I think you really need to know that I think most people would agree with me on, or everyone would agree with me on is like the piece that has to give you a little bit of peace or calm or, 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 you know, whatever you want to call that is that like you did probably the most important work that could be done on this planet. Like I, I believe like what you did and, and the victims that you did help the, the people that you stopped, um, the, the, the victims that never became victims because of the people you put away, the stuff that you did for a living and, and the trauma you put yourself through and, and the difficulties you put your own family through, uh, like there couldn't be more important work. Like I'm, I'm absolutely uh, appreciative and, um, you know, like there's never buddy, there's never been anybody that's sat across this table for me that I respect more. Thank you. That or that I think has done uh, more important work. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it means a lot. It really does. Um, it definitely was a lot. Um, but yeah, I'm very proud of it. Yeah, very proud of what I've been able to do. No, you should be. And uh, you know, for everybody that was traumatized out there that you you dealt with, you stopped so much more of it from happening. Yeah. And that's got to be, that's to me where you head into retirement, really proud of what you accomplished and what yeah. you stopped because you had no ability to stop. Uh, there's nothing you could have done when you found out about cases that are like, right. you know, what's being right. done is being done, but, but they're not doing it to anybody else now. Right. And yep. that is, um, I mean, most of us normal people will go through life, never ever having the ability to even stop one person. Sure. You know, and, uh, I think that's going to be the hardest part is to turn that off. Like, feeling like I, you know, but and no matter when you walk away, there's always another case. Like, yeah. There's always another case. Yeah. There's work. no like, yeah. So it's like, I kind of looked at it. I'm like, well, you know, 25 years is a long time to do, you know, we had, like I said, amazing experiences, travel the world, 
And it's, um, it's okay to but, have self-preservation. I mean, yeah. it's, it's okay yeah. to, um, you know, to take care of yourself, to take sure. care of your husband, your daughter, right. you know, your other kids. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's the thing, like, you'll never actually ever actually win, like, right. for real, like, right. where it's just over, right? So right. Right. it's okay to pass that baton. Yeah, and, and there's, and there's people right there behind me to pick up the slack and to, mm-hmm. and to take over where I left off. So I just felt like it was, you know, a good time. And one of the DEA guys that just retired last year, we've talked a little bit lately, and, and he's like, he's like, yeah, why are you leaving? And I'm like, it's time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, you know, I definitely want to spend some more time, you know, just like I said, being a, a wife and a mom and mm-hmm. not trying to juggle, you know, surveillance and basketball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, and you're track, also, track. And you're also an amazing still runner, yeah. just based mm-hmm. on, uh, based on who you're married to, you're also still kind of in it too. Right. Like, oh yeah. You know, yeah. With him. Yeah. He's yeah. Still... It's fun. Cause we definitely, you know, that is one nice thing, uh, you know, bouncing out cases and you know, what are your thoughts? What, what do you think you can do here? What do you know? Yeah. That's yeah, been a you great can, resource. You can dip your toe in a little bit and use yep. your investigative mind. to Right. Be like, you should do this. You're screwing up here. Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, he, Craig. He loves it when I say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely been, it's been a good run. Like I, you know, I went, I went out, um, on a high note, had some amazing people around me. Yeah. It's just been a good. What was your, what do you think you're like, do you have like a proudest moment? Do you have like a, was there a huge case or a big thing that you were like, man, you look back and it's like, this was the, the gold medal moment of my career. Gosh. Um, I would say that the child predator arrests, definitely those prosecutions, those sentencings. Um, there's been several. Mm-hmm. And then um, putting a really bad guy back on a plane to Iraq. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. And uh, does that guy just get to walk free in Iraq? Yeah, yeah. sadly, but he's not here. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Is that someone you catch coming across the border is no, that? he came here. He came here as a as a um. Um, he came here legally initially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Through yeah. a program. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That um. It, I I I find that that stuff would really intrigue me of investigating whether it's terrorist cell networks. Um, you know, people that are mm-hmm. um, you know, here as spies or that are, you know, being developed overseas like. I feel like that's the kind of work, like, I couldn't do the child predator stuff because I would, um, sure, I would take matters probably into my own hands and end right. up in prison myself if, right. if the court system didn't do it. Uh, but that kind of stuff, I feel like I yeah. would, I would, it would like intrigue the hell out of me. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was, it was, um, I learned so much about the world and, you know, what's gone on in the world and what has caused and created some of these groups to form and begin. You know, I was also, in 2001, I was supposed to be in Building 7 on the 12th. Oh, wow. So that, I think, shaped a lot of my, um, you know, need, want, desire to help keep us safer. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about where you were on 9-11 and yeah. what your role was. And that's my bad for being a bad no, interviewer. No, that's okay. I was in, I was in Phoenix, um, but I was packing to travel to go to New York to work. And yeah, building seven was the third building that collapsed. Um, so we got 
put on standby for some stuff in Arizona. Um, and then I went back in October um, and they were still pulling folks out. Really? Yeah. I was there on, uh, I think it was November or no, no, it was, uh, it was, well, it was six months after. So it was like, what is that? Um, February okay. was there on the six month anniversary and they were still. Yeah. Still smoking. Still. I mean, the pile was still smoking in there. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty real. Yeah. And what was your you know, job at the time? I was with secret service back then. Okay. And then the, um, Several of the, you know, the pilots or the terrorists trained in Phoenix there. So we worked on a lot of the investigative side of it, assisting with the FBI, trying to get information to them on piecing the puzzle together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that, that really changed everything with, like you say, with uh, Homeland Security and, Mm -hmm. you know, investing, investigating terrorism and terrorists and, you know, with your experience, without it being like political, with your experience of what you've seen through investigating and, and how our country has reacted to 9-11 and since and, you know, all the different things that we do, there's this debate of which I find myself waffling. I go back and forth. At times I want to, you know, go overseas and just wipe people off the map and come home and be like, Mm -hmm. okay, we took care of that shit. Sure. Um, But we don't do that. We go over and we do what we do, which seems to also just stir the hornet's nest more and more. And we stir that nest and we stir that nest. And, and at times it's, it's very frustrating. It seems like we're wasting time and money and lives. Um, But in another way, it can be argued. We're taking the fight to them. We're also destabilizing them. We're making it harder for them to come here but then there's the other argument of, which I also find myself on a lot of times, which is spend the dollars here, protect ourselves. We have the advantage of, of geography on our side, close our borders, and, and you know almost have this protectionism feel where we just stay at home and we build up and we have the most amazing defense system, but we just take care of our own things here at home. But then mm-hmm. there's the argument you would let people one, do terrible things in other countries, and then two, just build a network and build up to where they could potentially be more dangerous and have the ability to come over here. Mm-hmm. From what you've seen and whatnot, like, what do you think the right way is to go about it? Like, are we are we doing the right thing by being, and you, you we know we're covertly involved in South America and in Africa and, you know, all over the country we're involved with our CIA and, a lot of the things that we do are, are we doing the right thing by being involved overseas? Do you feel like? I think it's important. Um, especially just traveling so much abroad. I definitely feel like, um, we have to assist our allies when we can, but we have to make sure that the, what we're giving is going to where it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. Um, and being utilized properly if that's at all possible. But I definitely feel like, um, we have to assist even in like, you know, with what's going on, you know, in Israel and, you know, those kind of things. Like, there's definitely, we have to help our, otherwise, I do feel like once they gain strength, power, the ones that want to hurt us, that they, you know, we can't allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, we definitely, I think our footprint abroad needs to be um, there and active and, you know, um, 
then you know the question I'm kind of like you with the back and forth a little bit like you know Afghanistan we're in there for what 20 plus years you know yeah, and we just give it up right yeah and then we allow everyone to just jump on a plane and not, have no idea who they are whether you know right and one of the first ones here immediately goes and rapes a college student like no. is that okay no right. <laughs> like you know there has to be right ways to do things and we just aren't making the right decisions on how we handle certain situations. Mm -hmm. But sadly, like, was the Afghan military that we had trained and done all this stuff for, were they willing to enable to take it over themselves? No. No. So then will we ever, so then will we ever, when we ever, will we ever leave there? Like, will we ever, you know, could we ever leave there? I don't know. But was it a stabilizing force in the region, in the region at the time? Absolutely. Like, yeah, it's, I definitely, see what you're saying about the going back and forth. I do the same thing, but I definitely feel like, if we don't protect certain things, then we're just making it that much worse eventually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I, I do believe as bad as the way we left Afghanistan, it wouldn't have mattered how we left it. You could have done it in the absolute most controlled way. But the minute the last plane left the ground, no matter what we did, they were going to lose it in hours. Right. I mean, it just was right. like going to happen. Now that being said, mm-hmm who we were getting on planes and, you know, because I have a lot of, of, of veteran friends also that were actually involved, you know, the, some of the save our allies people and some oh, of them sure. that, that did a lot of that stuff. I, I do also understand a lot of those guys were with the best of intentions doing what they were doing to save people that did help us. And, Absolutely. And that, and there that were, and definitely their families were, were going to be murdered. That, and, yep. yep. You know, so it's like this weird, really tough trade off. I'm sure there's a few bad actors that got on those planes, but I'm also mm-hmm. quite certain that, those planes were probably full of a lot of really good people too. Sure. No, definitely. Um, Part of the problem though too, and, and you know, one of the things that I think that we need to focus more on when we are bringing in folks from other countries is our, our culture is very different than other cultures around the world. Mm-hmm. Even how, you know, men look at women in other places in the world and how men treat women in other places in the world, mm-hmm. whether you're a person or your property. Right. Um, you know, and, and some of that assimilation and some of that training needs to happen before Folks are just released out into the public right. in areas where no one speaks their language, you know, Dari, Pashtu, Farsi. Like, you have to, there has to be some kind of assimilation before you just let folks run rogue off, hand them a thousand bucks or 1500 bucks, give them a free hotel room to go stay in and just say, right. good luck, you know? Yeah. And I think they're realizing that now and they're trying to be better about it. But the way it was initially set off, awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and those people are naturally going to go attached to people that look and talk like them. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's in Minnesota or wherever mm-hmm. they end up in, you know, Minneapolis and they end up, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and do attach to a, a few bad actors that are already here. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely need to know, you know, these are the rules here. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. This is, you know, you will go to jail. You will, you know, you can't certain things like there just wasn't really a lot of focus on, it was just more like, okay, let's, you know, oh, they're, we're going to get them on these planes. We're going to get them over here. But then there was, it was like, then it dropped. There was no, like, right. how do we get them to be, you know, productive, successful members of our society? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the culture differences are, and there again, you're trying to teach someone culture. And even in our own, you know, if you just take, you know, black and white Americans that have, you know, been here for generations, we ourselves can't even de- agree on right. what the right culture is. And right. we can't even agree on what we would teach those people. Yeah. It's just, um, can't yeah. agree in our own country on our own things, right. much less what to, to teach people. And I, I, again, it, it, to me, this all comes back to 
um, to like family values. And I'm, I'm actually not a religious person really at all, mm -hmm. but I, one thing I, I get my hackles raised a lot on a lot of religious stuff. Cause I think a lot of the world's problems are frankly <laughs> involve religion Yeah, <clears throat> on Definitely. whatever side <laughs> that being said, the one piece that you can, I can definitely argue that was really great about religion in the past generations were a lot of the core values, mm -hmm. you know, just being good to your neighbor right. and doing the right. right thing and being and the honest. The teachings are there, the, like the, the solid, ethical, yeah. you know, 10 commandments and whatnot, like that part of religion, whether, you know, most, most religions, you know, all kind of preach some of that stuff. Sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, by, by losing a lot of religion in our country and moving away from the church and the religious side. And, and it's, and it's, it's weird. Cause I, I don't go to church and like I say a lot of, I've seen a lot of religious people at the bar on Saturday night doing a lot of shit they shouldn't be doing. Right. So I tend right, to, right. I tend to think there's a lot of hypocrites involved sure, in religion, sure. but, uh, they are, they, it did used to provide quite a foundation for our country. Sure. You know, when our, when the, Four founders found our country, and a lot of that religion was based in, and a lot of our government and our constitution was set up through religious beliefs, even though there was a separation kind of church and state. Sure. Um, so our, our degradation of values in our country is, mm -hmm. that's the part back to the family. Sure. And that's, that's where I can, like, I got to check out of it a lot of times and mm -hmm. just like worry about what I do and worry about my family. Because if I think about it too much, it depresses me because I'm like, we're not sure. coming back from this. Like, I don't yeah. know short of, uh, and really, unfortunately, I mean, nine 11 was the last time we had togetherness and community and pride and short of terrible tragedy, tragedy or terrible hard times, like mm -hmm. real hard times. Right. Um, I'm not sure how that comes back without. I think, yeah, we had it for a couple of years and now it's almost worse than it was before. It feels like for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting. Like I'm not, um, I definitely believe in God and I, and I, you know, have had a Christian faith background. Um, but I, you know, having been blessed enough to travel over the world, you know, through my job and, um, and things and seeing people who were, you know, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, they were amazing people, yeah. amazing people. Just because I was born in white Christian America, does that right. make, does that mean they're not going to find a heaven or find a, for me, I think that if you're a good person and you treat other people, you know, you treat people well and that hopefully if there is, you know, a, right. an amazing place that we're all going to end up there, um, that's where me and religion have some, you know, fallings out somewhat, but um, I definitely, you know, try to keep faith and be, strong in that and especially because of the message like I do like I feel like you're like you said be good to your neighbor be good to your mm -hmm. you know your family take care of one another like that's the stuff the message that I wanted our kids to have and our you know um it's definitely a um it's a question that you know I do feel like with the demise of of organized religion more so I mean it's definitely not completely but definitely mm -hmm. it has declined I think over the years like you're saying but I feel like um there are amazing people around this world, definitely. Yeah. And, I, and, and most to, of the folks that came on that plane were amazing people, but we just need to right. do a better job at making sure that what we're doing is and who we're letting in are the right folks. When I went to Mexico and I saw some really terrible conditions in the way a lot of those people were living, I also saw people that were, 
as happy a people I've ever seen in my life. Right. Because they really only just had family. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they didn't have anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was really bad, but yep. uh, they were great people. Right. Really great people. Yeah. And, and same thing. I've been to Abu Dhabi and I've been to Europe and mm-hmm. Istanbul and I've been to different mm-hmm. places and I've seen really great people right. in those places as well. Right. Um, and that's, I struggle with that same thing because mm-hmm. just because you were born, you know, Catholic, white person in New York, um, does that mean every brown person on the other side of the globe is going to hell like because they believe yeah. something else? And and I also believe like with based on like even with the career that you just spent, um, you know, you investigate some guy who's been raping kids for the last 40 years and all of a sudden he recognizes his ways and grabs a Bible and and, you know, gets baptized and asks for forgiveness, that fucker's still going to hell, man. I don't mm-hmm. give a shit. You stack yeah, as many Bibles as you want around him. I that one, too. He's burning yeah. in hell, and there is yeah. no coming back from that. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you you can't just ask for forgiveness. So yeah. <laughs> that's my little rant because I'm just like, <laughs> no, I know a lot of guys have never gone yeah. to church in their life, mm-hmm. and they cuss, and they, you know, do stupid shit or whatever, but they are good people that would right. do anything for you and your family. And, you yeah. know, they were plumbers or roofers their whole life or loggers and a right. little rough around the edges, but yep. they're, uh, they're the kind of neighbor that you would want. Absolutely. You know, they're going to plow, your, we all should be. plow like, your driveway yeah, for thing, you right. and mm-hmm. help you and donate their last dollar to, you know, their friend's cancer fund. I mean, yep. those are the kind of neighbors I want. Yep. Um, whether they go to church or not. Right. You know? Yep. So, and whether they're Democrat or Republican. Right. You know, that's the other part of it, too, that's right. tearing us apart is the, and, you know, that would be, a, that's why I find what you, part of what your career was involved with, with the politics stuff, I f- would find so fascinating because um, I would imagine that you found some of the people that you agreed with politically to maybe not be sometimes the greatest people, and sometimes the people that you didn't agree with as much politically might have also been genuinely great people like yeah there would be this weird balance where politics doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person or bad right um but you also might not necessarily agree on everything so it's it's an interesting career you've had yeah for sure no definitely i i wouldn't trade it i wouldn't trade it at all like Mm -hmm. i definitely am thankful for for all of it but you know we're talking about being thankful for stuff and literally i we're in, in Sudan, and there's a woman who literally has like a thatch roof hut, you know, and she's made a broom out of sticks, and she sweeps that floor every day, and she's so proud of what she has. Yeah. Like, that's what everyone should see. Like, everyone should be able to understand what's important, feeling blessed with what you have. Like, um, yeah. It's, that's where I think yeah. social media is really unfortunate because that lady is proud of what she owns. It's not much. Right. But it's hers. But you could have eaten off that dirt floor yep. because of the level of, you know, pride that she took in what she had and what she, you know. Yes. And just so thankful, you know, for everything that, and here, I think we have so many people who are so entitled and just expect everything to be given handed. Well, there's that. And there's you know. also, you know, if you own a, if you own or even rent a, a one bedroom apartment in an apartment complex and you know, you're working, uh, you know, a, a minimum wage job or a job that you don't necessarily want forever. But like that one bedroom apartment's yours. Like you can take pride in that mm-hmm. and you can take pride in that it's tidy and it's clean. And, right. you know, um, you can take pride in, 
you know, being a mom to your kids in that one bedroom apartment mm-hmm. and doing the best job that you can do and know that like over time you keep doing things right. Like down the road, you might get that two bedroom apartment right? Um, or someone who owns a real tiny home in a low income part of Missoula, but they own it mm-hmm. and they, that's where Instagram, you open up Instagram and you see that person with that bigger house with, you know, mm-hmm. that more, more land or fancier mm-hmm. cars. And I think what so many people fail to recognize is a lot of times those people in that that one-bedroom apartment or that tiny house are actually happier and have more, frankly, than those people with the cars and right. the, the appearance of happiness. Yeah. That, that gal in the Sudan or that those people that I saw in Mexico might very likely be happier than most people you see on Instagram that, sure. that appear to have everything. Yeah. You know, that's where I think with social media, you can curate your own feed based on what you look at, who you follow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big believer in that. I try to follow positive people. Sure. Even some of my own friends. That's why I got off Facebook. I don't, even if I agree with your political opinions, I don't want to hear it all the time. Right. This next nine months, 10 months. Oh, it's going to be a ride. Oh, mm-hmm. I just leave yeah. the TV off. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. I don't want to know about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we definitely need to feel, and I would imagine with what you've seen, um, it also makes you feel very fortunate for what you do have and for the community we live in and definitely with the difficulties you've seen around our country. Yeah, definitely. We're super thankful for the sense of community that we have in our area and the friends that we've made and, um, the stuff that we've, you know, been able to accomplish. Definitely. It's been, um, my husband's a huge outdoorsman, so Mm -hmm. he loves that aspect too. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, we choose to live here. I mean, yeah. we're lucky enough to do that. You know, we were lucky enough to both get transferred here and, and to do what we want to do. But, um, yeah, I just wish that that as a country we could kind of come together more and get on the same page because we're definitely going to be our own our yeah. own downfall for sure. Well, to close out, what is the best advice that you can offer to, um, you know, parents, whether it's parents of teenagers or parents of a, of a one-year-old, like heading into, you know, the next 18 years? Sure. Um, I would just, communication is key, being present, listening, um, be, you know, a part of what they're doing. You know, you can't um, expect them to make the right choices and, and do the right thing if they don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to talk to them about what's going on around them, what's going on in the world. Um, if you can and you're blessed enough to take them to see what's going on around them and see what's going on in the world. Um, you know, I feel like every kid should go see what we have compared to what some other kids have in some other countries. Um, definitely like I, but mostly communication, just be aware of what's going on. Talk to them about social media, lock down everything. <laughs> you know, if you decide that you want them to be on it, cause you're probably going to lose that battle, whether it's in your house or in somebody else's, mm-hmm. um, just so that they are aware of what, you know, do you feel like there's a social media that's, uh, more safe than others? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> um, you know, probably not. Like, I, I mean, because... Like, is Instagram better than TikTok or, you know, um, Facebook better than... Facebook? Well, I don't trust TikTok at all. I think that that's tied to China spying. Yeah. That's just my own... Yeah, but I don't... So, yeah, we don't do a lot of TikTok, but um, even, like, Snapchat, Instagram. But, I mean, you can find bad and good anywhere so it really you just have to be cognizant of locking down your your controls and making sure that you're not leaving stuff open to being you know and and ultimately your kids 
can be based on your parenting, frankly, because mm-hmm. I don't care. I mean, your parents can be federal agents, and yep. these kids are smart. Yep. Um, they can they can mm-hmm. access stuff. I don't care how locked yep. down you are. And and we we made a rule with our kids when they were young, um, when they started getting devices like phones, that um, they had to plug them in out on the counter at night. Mm-hmm. Because it, right at first, it was just me being naive. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because my kids were looking anything bad, but uh, we'd be in their room at night tell them goodnight or whatever, and their phone's over on the table just buzzing. Ding, 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 all night yeah, long. Buzzing, yeah, buzzing, buzzing. kids are and, up all night long. It's and, crazy. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. if you're a kid and you're like almost asleep and it's 10 o'clock mm-hmm. and that thing buzzes and then it's 11 and it's 12 mm-hmm. and, and and that opens up the opportunity, obviously, for bad shit the later at night it gets. Right, um, right. So we took it out of their room just to take sure. away the temptation. Did you take away their smart TV too because it's all on there too. TV. Smart TV. Where? Like kids can access in or, their rooms or just in general. I'm oh. just so it's just something that parents don't even think about. So yeah, I had we a, never had any, and we never allowed any video games in our house. Gotcha. So yeah, all that stuff, video games, smart TVs. I'm not saying take it away. I'm just saying be cognizant that it's that it, they can access or people can access them through that stuff. Really? Like I had a gal. She was being sextorted. Um, mom took away the phone, called us. You know, went into the investigation, and then we're like. Oh, but what about the TV in her bedroom? And her, it was a smart TV. And so, yeah, she had stopped talking to him on the phone, but she was talking to him on the TV. Really? Mm-hmm. Just stuff to think about. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, we never allowed TVs in their rooms, but I know a lot of people do have them. In there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then... Tablets, all that stuff. We also made them, you know, uh, give us their passwords. So mm-hmm. even just the threat of... But, you know, we'd now and then open up their, their phones and look through them, but it was sure. more of also just the idea that that we could sure that it's like, I don't care if you're 16, like you're right. a kid, you live in my house. Like right. you're pa- like, there is no password protected. Well, and telling your kid, you're going to drug test them. Yeah. You know, could be tomorrow. It could be not because I think you're going to do anything wrong. I'm just gonna, mm-hmm. and don't make them pee, t- pull their hair. Cause that's what, that's where it shows everything. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeez. But that is a good deterrent. And then if they have, you know, a friend that says, hey, it's fine, you whatever, your mom's never going to know. You're like, no, she drug tests me. Yeah. How, how far back can the drug test show in hair? Um, I don't know exactly, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long time. Is like, it? Yeah. And it shows everything. Like, I think, you know, some things leave the system pretty quickly, but the hair shows, I think, I don't want to say exactly because I don't know exactly, but that's definitely the, the most. Wow. The best answer is the hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, um. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate appreciate being here. Everything that you've done for our country, for for our community. My only, I'm glad for you for retirement, but I'm, I'm a bit sad for our community. We're Mm -hmm. losing that much experience and uh, someone that cares that much, but I'm sure we'll get a a good agent here. I'm glad that that, that was actually one of my big concerns is that we lose so much experience and that it doesn't get replaced. Sure. One of the things that I spoke about with, um, the uh, um, assistant special agent in charge, he sits in Helena now. He's he's new to the area, but um, he came from back east, but super great, super great guy. I said, you know, whoever comes here has to be somebody who's been around the block. Like, you can't put a new guy here because there's, there's too much work and there's too much to do, and that it's a too big of a learning curve. So hopefully they listen. But, yeah, that, that was – they're announcing it this week, it sounds like. so. What made you maybe not just move into more, like, managing – Versus mm. like being in it, but like sure. being in like that position where the, the times that I was 
you know, offered the positions. It just didn't work out for our family. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the one in Phoenix was, um, you know, I definitely um, think I would have enjoyed that. I had a, an amazing group. I supervised 12 guys and gals on that anti-smuggling task force. And they had had several different actings um, over the course of, you know, a couple of years. And they just had no direction. And a lot of them were newer, didn't know what to do, how to be good investigators, and just needed someone to go with them, show them, be on the street, do, you know, just game plan stuff with them, help them. Yeah. Um, and I love that role. That was an amazing role. Um, but I knew we, the, the Montana stuff was starting to come to fruition and I wouldn't be able to get right to get here. And then the other, you know, um, the other big one was that one where, again, I turned it down for family. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. that is one of the things um, being, and, and men can do it too, though, but as, as, a, as a mom, you know, um, it was hard to, and we even talked about even for the 18 months, you know, taking our daughter with us out there, putting her in school for a year. Um, that would have been an amazing experience. You know, in college, I did a student exchange from Arizona to New Jersey, and it was like mm. a whole different, you know, right. the culture. The You know, I, I think everyone should get to experience different parts of this country because we are so diverse and there's so much yeah, stuff. Yeah. I, I, uh-huh. pe- people would claim, you know, being male chauvinist or sexist or whatever. But I mean, I do think part of our downfall in our country is the fact that more women aren't just at home raising families. And the unfortunate part is, is like, I'm sure obviously there's lots of women that want to be professionals. They want to be in the workforce and they want to be doing like what you've done. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or working in companies like ours or whatever. But there's also a lot of women that would love to just be at home and be a mom sure. that are forced to work because of how expensive our society is. And that, sure. that alone <clears throat> is, I think, a big, big, if you look at the difference between the 50s, 60s, and 70s versus the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, um, right. you know, the not, you know, or... You know, if you want to say the the dad being at home, but like having one parent at home versus sure. a daycare situation, sure, is a uh, to me that's a big, big like nobody's going to raise your own kids with the same passion that the parent is, right? No, you know? very true. Um, yeah, I think you know it sounds like there's even been a shift somewhat in traditional roles of you know around the country a little bit, and I don't know how much that will take root or what, but I think financially it is is the biggest deterrent for that. Yeah, um, but I wouldn't. I honestly though, I wouldn't trade my career either like I loved what mm-hmm. I did and I was really good at it mm-hmm. and I think so many women have so much to offer in the workforce too mm-hmm. um, it's just a difficult it, it's just you just have to be very cognizant of what you're doing and try to be as present as you possibly can when you're present it's definitely mm-hmm. I mean I, I've said this several times like it's definitely harder to be the mom than the dad in that situation um, it's it's yeah. It's tough because especially in those first formative years of their lives, they need mom, frankly. <laughs> you know. Um Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a challenge. But I I admire like, you know, yeah, someone it, like you, know, you that's able even to even as get a female special agent, I don't know how many, you know, of us were, you know, pumping in the office and <laughs> yeah. locking a door, you know, and going in because that stuff is important, you know, right. to have that. But yeah, it's um it's just sacrifices that you make, you know, too. But yeah, I you know, being on here too, I would just like to encourage, you know, our youth um, or folks that are looking at a position to consider going to be a federal agent because the experiences that you're going to have, the differences that you're going to make are amazing. We get paid pretty well. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
you start out, you know, I think I started back out was like in the forties or fifties, but you move up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to make good money. You know, by the time you walk out the door, we, mm-hmm. we do really well. Plus you put away for your retirement, you get healthcare. Right. Um, I encourage women to do, you know, to jump in, even if you're, you don't think you can do it cause you don't shoot a gun or you don't, they're going to teach you sure. on how to do all that stuff. But we need to get our folks involved and in wanting to do this line of work because community does support you, even though you think they may not. Yes. And yeah. um, it is important to what you're doing and you're going to feel good about yourself um, and the um, ability to give back to those around you is yeah. something you can't replace. So I encourage folks, if you're thinking about it, usajobs.gov is where everything is posted. Mm-hmm. Everything is posted for every federal agency on there. Um, or even if you want to do, you know, locally, state and local for your own community. But yeah, I definitely encourage folks to, uh, to pursue it. It's been an amazing life. Well, and I think it's going to be a pendulum, like all these things. You see these pendulum swing. I think we've even seen it swing kind of back. You know, we had the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stuff with the law enforcement kind of, I guess you want to call it like the George Floyd type time frame. Mm-hmm. But I, and the defund the police, right? And I think right. we've already seen, you know, the results of it's necessary of and important. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. I think we've seen it swing back where there's definitely more support. And I think for the large majority of Americans, our police never lost the support. Right. It's just shut the news off. Don't watch the news and true. don't listen to the protest and you're going to be just fine. Right. Yeah. You know? No, definitely. But definitely. But I appreciate yeah. definitely everything you've said today and it, it, it means a lot to hear it. It's nice. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.